Russian Bishop's House, Sitka. Tour Description The Russian Bishop's House is one of the few surviving examples of Russian colonial architecture in North America. The original building was completed in 1843 for the Russian Orthodox Church. It is an approximately 7,500 square foot building, comprised of two floors and an attic. The first floor contains visitor exhibits and artifacts. The second floor is a restored bishop's residence and active Russian Orthodox chapel. The building walls are constructed of stacked flush logs cut flat on the interior side to give the appearance of wood plank siding. The exterior is a combination of board and batten and clapboard cladding painted yellow with a metal red ochre orange colored hip roof. Visitors enter and exit through the front door at the front left side of the building which opens onto a small lobby area and ranger desk. Two interior stairways connect the first and second floors, one at the front entrance to the right of the ranger's desk, and one on the opposite, eastern end of the building. First Floor Lobby 14 by 20 feet. In the center of the room as you pass through the front entrance doorway is a small rectangular park ranger desk with informational materials and maps. Walls are wide vertical plank paneling painted white. Directly right of the desk is a flight of stairs to the chapel and second floor. To the left of the entrance doorway is a small bookshelf with items available for purchase such as postcards and historical books. A series of historical photos showing previous building renovations are placed above the bookshelf. The room also includes a wooden bench for seating and a small table with a donation box to support park programming. To the left of the park ranger desk a corridor leads through an open doorway to a small L-shaped room and the first floor exhibits. Back Entry, 11 by 14 feet. This is a small, L-shaped room with a freestanding chalkboard, a wooden bench, and a rectangular table in the corner opposite of the doorway from the lobby with a visitor's log and rubber ink stamp. Walls are white vertical plank paneling. Flooring is wide wood plank flooring painted brown and covered with gray carpet runners for protection from foot traffic. A small doorway opposite of the lobby entrance connects to the exhibit entrance room. Exhibit entrance, 13 and a half by 7 feet. Between the stamp room and the Russian America exhibit there is a small rectangular passageway with no furniture and doorways on three sides. The walls are painted white. Directly right is a doorway to the Russian America exhibit, and directly ahead a doorway to the video room. To the right of the Russian American exhibit doorway is a section of wall preserved in its unrestored whitewashed state. Small modern ramps cover large raised thresholds between the rooms. The design helped to retain heat in the occupied room and keep out drafts from other rooms. A clear plexiglass panel is mounted atop of the unrestored wall section for protection. Russian America, 13 and a half by 20 feet. Through the doorway to the right in the exhibit entrance is a large, open room divided into two sections by a pair of square white columns supporting an archway and rafter near the center of the room. The floors are white wooden plank flooring painted brown and the walls are painted yellow with a narrow band of solid gray paint at the ceiling and an approximately two-foot band of gray speckled flake paint at the floor. A row of five vertical windows face out toward the street and waterfront. The first section includes three horizontal display cases, each four to eight feet wide, with historical content relating to the Russian colonial period and fur trade. A large touchable sea otter pelt is draped across the display case in the back of the room. Directly to the left of the room entrance is a large metal working wood stove. Russian America, 
20 by 20 feet. The second section includes three additional horizontal display cases, each approximately 8 feet wide, with historical content related to the Russian-American company, as well as artifacts including woodworking tools and muskets. A doorway in the back left corner opens to the diorama. An additional vertical display case approximately 10 feet wide against the wall to the right of the diorama doorway contains artifacts including tea boxes, a boat model, a blue Cossack robe, and copper and brass tea kettles. A large brass bell with a wooden yoke is in the back right corner beside the window. Diorama, 20 by 13 feet. Through the doorway at the end of the Russian America exhibit is a medium-sized room with two windows on the back right wall. The floors are white wooden plank flooring painted brown and the walls are painted mint green with a narrow band of solid gray paint at the ceiling and an approximately two-foot band of gray speckled flake paint at the floor. In the right side center of the room is a large T-shaped diorama scale model depicting the area of present-day Sitka as seen in 1845. The diorama is approximately waist high and can be viewed from multiple sides. Alongside the diorama to the left is a rolling chalkboard with additional historical maps of Sitka. Directly ahead and to the left as you enter from the Russian America exhibit is a tall cylindrical metal wood stove. There are doorways to the left and right of the wood stove, with the left doorway opening onto the Russian Orthodoxy exhibit and the right doorway opening into the cutaway room. Cutaway room. 12 by 13 and a half feet. At the far end of the diorama room is a 10-foot-long hallway leading to a stairwell and a room off the right called the cutaway room. Almost as soon you as you enter, a barrier separates you and remaining three-quarters of the room. Behind the barrier, portions of the floor, ceiling, and wall have been removed to show construction details. Behind wide plank wood ceiling and floor reveal large wood beams with an insulation of sand and wood chips. Walls reveal original and replaced logs from rough to smooth. A large cylindrical metal wood stove sits in the front right corner and two exhibit panels describe the room in more detail. Russian Orthodoxy, 20 by 20 feet. To the left of the diorama room is a large room with yellow and gray painted walls and three vertical windows on the back wall. Two cylindrical support columns are in the center of the room and connect to two transverse ceiling beams. The room contains six horizontal display cases distributed evenly throughout the room, with three on the back wall, one center, and one each side wall. Each display is approximately four feet wide, painted red, and contain a variety of historical items from the Russian Orthodox Church including church documents, sheet music, icon prints, votive lamps, pendants, medallions, holy cards, and brocade cuffs. A mannequin is dressed in deacon's liturgical vestments. On the left and right, unrestored sections of the wood and brick walls are on display protected by plexiglass. A large black cylindrical metal wood stove is located in the corner directly to the right upon entering the room. A wide doorway in the middle of the left side wall opens into the video room. A narrow doorway in the middle of the right side wall opens into the kitchen. Video room. 13 by 20 feet. Through the doorway at the end of the Russian Orthodoxy exhibit is a medium-sized room with two windows on the right side wall. The floors are white wooden plank flooring painted brown and the walls are painted yellow with bands of solid gray and mint green paint in various locations throughout the room. 
On the right side of the room five white wooden benches are arranged in two rows in front of an approximately 35-inch television on a wooden display stand. On the back wall in the center of the room behind the benches is a large black metal wood stove. On the left-hand wall a vertical display case approximately 3 feet wide by 7 feet tall is painted red and contains an account book and writing desk with secret compartments. Directly ahead a doorway returns to the exhibit entrance room. Kitchen, size 20 by 13 and a half feet. To the left of the entrance into the kitchen is a small seating area with three white benches arranged in a line in front of an approximately 40-inch television. The screen shows E.W. Merrill photograph collection. A pull-up banner display to the left of the TV provides additional information on Elbridge Warren Merrill. A large portion of room in the opposite corner is closed off by a railing. The railing protects the unrestored and unpainted wood and brick walls of the room. Two horizontal display cases in the back right corner of the room house a variety of artifacts including toys, piping, door latches, frying pans, and serving dishes. The entire space with the exception of the area inside the protective railing is painted white and gray. A narrow door in the back right corner opens into a large open area with a stairwell leading to the second floor. Second floor. Library, 5 by 5 and a half feet. Directly ahead and to the left at the top eastern stairway landing is a narrow doorway into a small square library room. In the center of the room is a small circular rug with symmetrical floral patterns. The walls are covered in white wallpaper with a green damsel pattern. On the left side wall a small pedestal is covered in red cloth with an open Bible on top. Directly in front is an approximately 3 foot wide by 7 foot tall wooden bookshelf. The bookshelf is painted white and has five shelves filled with historic books and booklets. To the right an additional narrow doorway opens into the bishop's bedroom. Dining room, 13 and a half by 20 feet. Directly ahead at the top eastern stairway is a large doorway opening into a large room with two windows on the right side wall. The floors are wide wooden plank flooring painted brown and covered with protective gray carpet runner. The walls are covered in white wallpaper with a repeating gold and brown damask pattern. A narrow floral accent strip approximately 5 inches wide is at the top of the walls near the crown molding. On the left side wall is a small square brick chimney that serves the two adjoining rooms. Directly ahead is a doorway opening onto the parlor. To the right and back side of the room is a large dining table with seven chairs and simple white tablecloth. The table is set for seven places with a matching set of blue and white porcelain dinnerware including, plates, bowls, saucers, cups, serving platters, and pitchers. Silverware is set for the three places on the back side of the table and one place on the far right end. An additional row of five wooden chairs with black cushions is on the right side wall beneath the windows. Behind the table is a narrow profile brick oven heating stove flanked by two oil lamps. In the corner opposite of the entrance door from the stairwell is a doorway into the pantry. Pantry, 12 and a half by 6 and a half feet. The pantry is a small room with one window to the left. The walls are rough hewn square painted white logs. Blue and white porcelain dinnerware sit on barrels and storage chests around the room with jugs, bottles, and jars scattered in between. Directly ahead on the wall are two matching wooden shelving racks displaying additional porcelain serving dishes and three silver platters. A variety of copper pitchers and kettles are on top of the left side shelving rack. A porcelain tea kettle and two porcelain serving bowls and lids sit on the right shelving rack.
guest room, 20 by 13 feet. This is a large rectangular room with two doorways and two large windows on the far side. The walls are covered in claret red wallpaper with a light gold floral vine pattern. On the far end of the room is a four-drawer wooden dresser, a pedestal table with brass holder and taper candle and two plates, and a twin-size bed with sleigh-shaped wooden bed frame. Above the table is a framed print. Beneath the bed is a black and green accented rug with repeating floral patterns. The bedspread is light blue with intricate floral stitching. A large cherry-stained wooden trunk with diamond-shaped burl is at the base of the bed. To the right of the bed is an additional four-drawer wooden dresser with a brass holder and taper candle, and a four-panel wooden privacy screen with pleated white fabric panels positioned against the wall. In the corner opposite the bed is a white brick heating stove and arch-shaped inset shelf. To the right of the stove is a traditional occasional chair with dark wood legs and arms and mustard-colored fabric cushions. To the left of the stove is a small wooden side wash stand with two drawers and a brass holder with taper candle. In the corner opposite the study is a large doorway opening onto the reception room. Bishop's Study, 13 and a half by 10 feet. Directly adjoining the guest room and Bishop's bedroom is a small room with two large windows. Three of the four walls are covered in white wallpaper with a green damsel pattern with the left side wall painted white. A rectangular rug is placed in the center of the room with a repeating pattern in red, blue, and green. In the corner directly to the right is a dark green Breguere chair placed at a 45-degree angle to the corner. A small altar shelf with candle and framed icon is placed in the front left corner beside the window approximately 6 feet above the floor. On the far wall is a wooden writing desk with a central drawer. Wooden organizers on each side of the desk provide additional drawers and document storage. A variety of items are placed on top of the desk and organizers including a notebook, candlestick with candle, teacup and saucer, a spoon, and a wooden abacus. A dark wooden traditional occasional chair with black cushion is placed directly in front of the desk, with an additional chair on the left side facing back into the room. To the left of the desk and chairs is a small doorway into the closet. Closet, 4 by 5 and a half feet. Directly adjoining the study is a narrow doorway into a small closet. Three of the walls are painted white. The fourth, right-hand wall continues the patterned white and green damsel wallpaper from the study. A four-panel wooden privacy screen with pleated white fabric panels is folded for storage on the left side of the closet. Bishop's Bedroom, 9 and a half by 7 and a half feet. This is a small windowless rectangular room with doorways at opposite corners. The walls are covered in white wallpaper with a green damsel pattern. On the right is a twin-size bed with sleigh-shaped wooden bed frame, two pillows and a bedspread in a floral vines pattern with alternating linear stripes of varying thickness in red, white, navy, gold, and blue. Directly above the headboard is a cross depicting the biblical crucifixion. Opposite of the bed is a corner floor-to-ceiling brick heating stove painted white with three cast-iron doors. To the left of the brick stove is a small wooden nightstand with two pendants and a porcelain water pitcher on top. A small rectangular rug with a large octagonal repeating floral pattern is placed between the bed and the nightstand. Reception Room, 20 by 27 feet. The dining room and guest room open directly onto the formal reception room. This is a large rectangular room with four windows on the back right wall and two large white brick wall stoves positioned at the center of the end walls. 
The floors are wide wooden plank flooring painted brown and covered with protective gray carpet runners. The walls are covered in light gray and off-white pattern wallpaper with a repeating horn and floral element in green and burgundy. Two four-panel wooden privacy screens with pleated white fabric panels are extended perpendicular from the left-hand wall, creating a semi-enclosed area in the center left of the room around the seating area. The seating area includes an approximately 5-foot wide mahogany wood settee with mustard-colored floral fabric, and two matching traditional occasional chairs. A low wooden pedestal table covered with a simple white fabric tablecloth is placed in center of the seating pieces. On top of the table is a large samovar for making tea and five pink and gold porcelain teacups with matching saucers. Above the settee is a large framed oil portrait of Russian Tsar, Alexander II. Beneath the seating area is a black rug with octagonal repeating floral patterns. Alongside the wall between the windows are two wooden folding card tables and knee-hole desk, with large mirrors above the card tables, and a large decorative brass candle holder on the center table. The right side table includes a box-shaped wooden clock. A traditional wooden occasional chair with black cushions is placed beneath each window. A set of two additional mustard-colored chairs matching the set in the seating area are placed in each of the two back wall corners. At the far end of the room are two doorways, one opening directly forward to the corridor at the attic and attendance room entrances, and the other opening left into the chapel. Attendance room, 13 and a half by 12 feet. This is a small square room with two windows on the wall opposite the entrance door. The walls are covered in white and dark blue wallpaper with a simple repeating geometric pattern of a square grid interspersed by octagons. On the left is a twin-size cot with dark stained wooden frame. The bedspread is a simple tan-woven fabric with three red stripes at the edges. An additional white throw blanket with a single navy stripe is placed at the foot of the bed. Two wooden storage trunks are placed in the near left and far right corners of the room. To the left of the bed is a small wooden bedside table with a brass holder and taper candle. To the right of the bed is a four-panel wooden privacy screen with pleated white fabric panels. Between the two windows is an additional dark wood wash stand with a basin and water pitcher. In the back right corner of the room a portion of the wallpaper has been removed to reveal the wood log walls with reused paper strips to cover the cracks in the logs. In the near right corner is a white brick stove with cast iron access door and a fire poker leaning against the wall. Attic An unpainted doorway opens onto a steep, uneven, narrow staircase to the attic. The stairs ascend to a small landing platform and wooden catwalk with rails suspended above the second floor ceiling joists. Lights illuminate the underside of the roof structure to reveal a log rafter system running perpendicular to the roof slope. Two main symmetrical chimneys exit the roof. These are fed by pipes that come from the other chimneys to maintain the exterior symmetrical aesthetic. Chapel of Annunciation, 20 by 23 feet. A small vestibule at the front of the top stairway opens through a wide, double-doored entrance into the chapel nave. The walls in the chapel are rough-hewn logs painted gray. The floors are white wooden plank flooring painted white. Multiple large oil paintings, or religious icons, and hanging tapestries are placed on the walls to the left and right of the entrance doors depicting saints and religious feasts based on events mentioned in the Bible. Three wooden pedestals approximately three feet high are placed in the center of the room in a triangular layout the centermost pedestal closer to the entrance. 
A light blue fabric cover and framed religious image is placed on top of each pedestal and a large brass candle stand approximately 3 feet tall with multiple candles is placed behind each pedestal. An additional pedestal is offset to the right of the other three and has a red fabric cover and hymnal open to a page of sheet music on top. Directly opposite of the entrance doors is an elevated wooden platform and iconostasis wall, which is covered with a variety of oil paintings depicting saints and biblical events. The wall has three closed doorways, including a wooden double door painted white in the center and covered with six circular religious icon paintings. The two side doorways are completely covered with additional icons of angels. A framed rectangular painting depicting the Last Supper is directly above the central doorway. Multiple large hanging votive candles are between the doors. A small circular rug with eagle symbology is placed directly in front of the central doorway. Sheet Nakahiti, Sitka Tour Description the Sheet Gakwan Nakahiti Tribal Community House is built in the traditional style of Atlingat Clan House. It functions as a venue for community events, meetings, and cultural storytelling and dance performances. These performances feature dancers in Blingat regalia, drumming, and traditional songs of the Atlingat people. The building is approximately 3,500 square feet, including the main meeting hall, lobby, and gift shop. Visitors enter and exit the building through a set of glass double doors. Outside entrance. As visitors approach the facade of the main building, they are greeted by two separate tall wooden house posts, each painted with bright colors to represent traditional tribal dancers. The visitor's entrance is located around the corner of the building to the right. Lobby, size 23 by 11 feet. As visitors enter the main entrance, the lobby and gift shop are on the right hand side. There is one glass window wall including the entrance doors. The main hall is on the left hand side of the entrance through an open doorway. There are several glass display cases in the lobby showcasing traditional Blingat items and artifacts. Directly across from the main entrance, there is a framed Blingat dance robe hanging on the wall above a set of water fountains. Further to the right on this same wall are the restrooms. All the way to the right is a small cash register in the gift shop, which is partitioned off from the lobby with a sliding accordion door. Meeting Hall, size 61.5 by 51.5 feet. The main room is a large rectangular performance space with capacity for around 150 guests. The room has a vaulted ceiling and large exposed natural wood beams. Walls and ceiling are covered with natural wood panels. The seating area is inset off the walls around 6 feet forming a path around the room and level with the stage. Folding chairs line three sides of the room and descend three levels down toward a large sunken fire pit. The seating and fire pit face the stage. Along the back of the stage wall, floor to ceiling is a carved wood mural called a house screen that includes a small room-sized performance door in the middle. The walls are paneled with various sized unfinished rough wood planks. There is a display of traditional painted canoe paddles displayed on the wall directly left of the stage. Sheldon Jackson Museum, Sitka Tour Description The Sheldon Jackson Museum is the oldest museum in Alaska and is located in the first concrete building in the state. Construction began in 1895 and it has been occupied since 1897. The building was placed on the National Historical Register in 1972. It is named after Reverend Dr. Sheldon Jackson, who was the collector of many of its artifacts. The building is separated into two rooms divided by an open doorway. Visitors enter and exit through the front door. The main collections room displays over 1800 native Alaskan artifacts from all over the state. Lobby size 32 by 28.5 feet. 
The museum entrance is a lobby with framed historical photos and documents on the wall. The door to the main museum room is on the right, and a 19 by 22 foot enclave with restrooms is on the left. Museum room, size 60 by 60 feet, octagonal, 825 foot walls. The main museum is an octagonal room with a vaulted ceiling. The beams of the ceiling are angled towards an oculus in the center, which is approximately 35 feet high. The ceiling is made of yellow plank roofing, with dark stained exposed wooden beams. There are six vertical beams supporting the ceiling, and the surrounding walls are wide. The room has two rows of concentric tall glass display cases in the middle of the room and lining the outer walls, and a row of lower glass display cases framing the center of the room. The display shelves showcase day-to-day -day items such as bowls, baskets, and implements for hunting, fishing, and cooking. Artifacts traditionally used for ceremonial purposes such as feast dishes, shamanic implements, and regalia including chilcot and button blankets, dance bibs, dance fans, and masks are also represented. There are means of transportation including umyaks, kayaks, a baydarka, dugout, and birch bark canoes. In addition to the watercraft atop the cases, there are lingot bent wood boxes and box drums, herring rakes, an anchor and many other large artifacts. Above the larger artifacts, atop the cases along the perimeter walls, artifacts include smaller Tlingit carved and painted totem poles, Tlingit spears and bows and arrows, a Tlingit house emblem with formline design, Inupiaq ice scoops, Inupiaq and Yupik fishing and bird spears, a Yunana grass mat, two Yupik grass mats, Athabascan snowshoes, and more. In the center of the room there are three standing 12-foot-tall totem pole fragments. St. Michael's Orthodox Cathedral, Sitka Tour Description St. Michael's Russian Orthodox Cathedral is the principal representative of Russian cultural influence in the 19th century in North America. This outstanding example of Russian church architecture was by far the largest and most imposing religious edifice in Alaska until well into the 20th century. In 1962 it was designated as a National Historic Landmark. The present cathedral is a reconstruction of the original 1840s building which burned to the ground in January 1966. The cathedral's floor plan is in the shape of a cross with the main sanctuary forming the horizontal bar of the cross. A bell tower rises above the second floor near the entrance of the building at the base of the cross. The church interior is approximately 2,900 square feet, excluding the basement and is separated into two rooms divided by an open doorway. Visitors enter and exit through the front doors. Throughout the space are religious icons. These are often framed paintings of religious figures and or depictions of religious events, which are used in ceremonies and other services. Outside Entrance The cathedral sits in the middle of what could be considered a town square sitting in the middle of a city roundabout. There is a set of five steps with three hand railings that lead up to the main entrance of the cathedral with two columns framing two sets of double doors that lead inside. The entrance is part of a bell tower and steeple, with a Roman clock on the front-facing facade. Vestibule, size 12.5 by 19 feet. The vestibule serves as a lobby for the cathedral. To the immediate right is one exterior window, and a wooden cabinet in the corner. There are two double doors at the entrance, and a small closet to the left. There are various religious and historical framed icons and documents on the walls. There is an open doorway leading into the main cathedral directly across from the front door.
Nave, size 28 by 17 feet. The nave serves as the main area for the congregation. There is a small welcome sign and podium as you enter the nave, and a glass donation box on the right. A six-foot-wide dark red carpet runner extends through the middle of the floor. There is a single row of pews against the back wall and exterior windows to the left and right. The floor is light hardwood plank, and there is four-foot-high white wainscoting on the walls. There are several framed icons hanging on the walls above the wainscoting, and a brass chandelier hanging from the ceiling. There are three rows of two folding chairs on either side. Between the front row of chairs, a small hexagonal platform displays a hand-carved backless seat with an embroidered seat and red cushion, which served as St. Innocent's Bishop's Throne. Nave continued, size 64.5 by 22 feet. Continuing to the altar, the room now widens left and right doubling the width of the room. This area is open, void of any additional pews for seating. The dark red carpet runner continues through the middle of the light hardwood plank floor. There are three draped podiums on the carpet displaying photos and drawings of St. Michael and a framed icon. There are four white supporting columns in front of four wall corners framing the center section of the room. There are exterior windows to either side. Lining the walls of the room, there are more draped podiums and several hip-height glass display cases exhibiting various religious artifacts, scriptures, and other relics preserved from the cathedral's history. There are also brass candelabras and gilded crucifixes placed along the outer edges of the room, and framed icons adorning the walls above the white wainscoting. A larger brass chandelier hangs from an approximately 37-foot-high domed sky-blue ceiling, and a platform balcony overlooks the room from above. Iconostasis, size 35 by 8 feet. At the back of the nave is the Iconostasis wall. This wall separates the main congregation from the altar a back room that forms the top of the cross in the floor plan. In front of the wall is a raised floor about 8 feet wide that runs the width of the nave. At the center of the iconostasis is a set of gold-gilded double doors, each depicting three portraits of religious figures. On either side of the gilded doors, there are large vertical painted icons with gold framing on the walls depicting icons of angels and other religious figures. There are tall brass candle holders and draped podiums toward the outer edges of either side. Additional framed religious icons hang from the wall above the gilded doors, which lead up to a series of exterior windows and a domed sky-blue ceiling. Panel 1, left side, where nature and history meet. We are the trailhead of Totem Trail. Learn this traditional Klingit welcome. Two upright panels mark this location. To hear an overview of the trail system and points of interest, keep listening. To learn about trail rules and trail accessibility information, touch the pin to the medallion on the panel to your right. We begin with the left-hand panel. Title reads, Where Nature and History Meet, The Totem and Russian Memorial Trails. A map of the trail system is placed over an aerial photograph of the forest-covered park. Highlighted on the map is Totem Trail, a one-mile, 30-45-minute walk round trip. On this nearly-level Totem Trail loop, you will find Klingit and Haida Totem Poles, brought here from all over southeast Alaska. Continuing on your journey, you will pass the fort site, where the 1804 battle between local Klingit and Russian forces is commemorated. Also along the trail, enjoy Indian River, where in late summer and fall, you might encounter thousands of salmon traveling upstream to spawn. Hear and smell pink salmon as they struggle upstream to lay their eggs. Before the end of the trail, take the bridge across the river, if you like, to the Russian Memorial Loop, a three-quarter mile, or about 30-minute, round-trip loop east of the river. At the Russian Memorial site, you can contemplate the fate of the Russian sailors and Alutik and Aleut hunters who lost their lives in the Battle of Sitka. Other points of interest marked along the trail map include Totem Hall and exhibits at the Visitor Center. View some of the original totem poles that inspired the poles along the trail. Learn about the tools and techniques used to create these impressive monuments. And the Riverview Trail, a 0.6-mile round-trip trail along the Indian River. Panel 1, left side, where nature and history meet. 
We are at the trailhead of Totem Trail. Learn this traditional Klingit welcome. Two upright panels mark this location. To hear an overview of the trail system and points of interest, keep listening. To learn about trail rules and trail accessibility information, touch the pin to the medallion on the panel to your right. We begin with the left-hand panel. Title reads, Where Nature and History Meet, The Totem and Russian Memorial Trails. A map of the trail system is placed over an aerial photograph of the forest-covered park. Highlighted on the map is Totem Trail, a one-mile, 30 to 45-minute walk round trip. On this nearly level Totem Trail loop, you will find Klingit and Haida Totem Poles, brought here from all over southeast Alaska. Continuing on your journey, you will pass the Fort Site, where the 1804 battle between local Klingit and Russian forces is commemorated. Also along the trail, enjoy Indian River, where in late summer and fall, you might encounter thousands of salmon traveling upstream to spawn. Hear and smell pink salmon as they struggle upstream to lay their eggs. Before the end of the trail, take the bridge across the river, if you like, to the Russian Memorial Loop, a three-quarter mile, or about 30-minute, round-trip loop east of the river. At the Russian Memorial site, you can contemplate the fate of the Russian sailors and Alutik and Aleut hunters who lost their lives in the Battle of Sitka. Other points of interest marked along the trail map include Totem Hall and exhibits at the Visitor Center. View some of the original totem poles that inspired the poles along the trail. Learn about the tools and techniques used to create these impressive monuments. And the Riverview Trail a 0.6-mile round-trip trail along the Indian River. Panel 1, right side, trailhead orientation. We are at the trailhead of Totem Trail. Listen to this traditional Klingit welcome. Two upright panels mark this location. To learn about trail rules and trail accessibility information, keep listening. To hear an overview of the trail system and points of interest, touch the pin to the medallion on the panel to your left. We begin with this panel on the right. Trail Regulations. Two photographs demonstrate compliance. A woman walks her dog on a leash, and a man walks alongside his bicycle. A list of rules follow. Foot traffic only. Keep pets on a leash. Clean up all pet waste. Pet waste bags are provided at all trailheads. No camping. No open alcoholic beverages. Walk bikes on the trail. Below the regulations, supplemental panels complete the trailhead orientation and illustrate trail access information. The trail surface is compacted gravel. Much of the compacted gravel surface along Totem Trail is very flat and wide, with trail width typically ranging from 5 feet to 9 feet. However, sections along the river have more variation, including areas with a 7% grade and a maximum cross slope of 3 to 7%. The Totem and Russian Memorial Trails have many areas labeled as having no obstructions. However, some areas may have exposed tree roots and vegetation. A word of caution. Remember that trail conditions may change at any time. A section of this panel is reserved for park updates and news. Please check with the Visitor Center for today's posting. Panel 1, right side, trailhead orientation. We are at the trailhead of Totem Trail. Listen to this traditional Klingit welcome. Two upright panels mark this location. To learn about trail rules and trail accessibility information, keep listening. To hear an overview of the trail system and points of interest, touch the pin to the medallion on the panel to your left. We begin with this panel on the right. Trail regulations. Two photographs demonstrate compliance. A woman walks her dog on a leash, and a man walks alongside his bicycle. A list of rules follow. 
Foot traffic only. Keep pets on a leash. Clean up all pet waste. Pet waste bags are provided at all trailheads. No camping. No open alcoholic beverages. Walk bikes on the trail. Below the regulations, supplemental panels complete the trailhead orientation and illustrate trail access information. The trail surface is compacted gravel. Much of the compacted gravel surface along Totem Trail is very flat and wide, with trail width typically ranging from 5 feet to 9 feet. However, sections along the river have more variation, including areas with a 7% grade and a maximum cross slope of 3 to 7%. The Totem and Russian Memorial Trails have many areas labeled as having no obstructions. However, some areas may have exposed tree roots and vegetation. A word of caution. Remember that trail conditions may change at any time. A section of this panel is reserved for park updates and news. Please check with the Visitor Center for today's posting. Panel 2. Ambassadors for Alaska. For more than a century, the Totem Trail has been a Sitka landmark. Surprisingly, none of the poles came from Sitka. Their unlikely journey here represents the hopes and ambitions of politicians and native leaders. On the left side of this panel, a title, Ambassadors for Alaska. Klingit and Haida craftsmen carved the original poles for display in their villages in southeast Alaska. Alaska Governor John Brady admired the Alaska natives and formed friendships with many tribal members. They honored this friendship by donating their totem poles. In return, Brady promised to preserve the poles and persuade the U.S. government to provide schools and aid to their villages. A series of three sepia-toned photographs span the length of the panel. Each image illustrates a moment in the journey of these poles to Sitka, beginning with a native village, then a world's fair, and now here along Totem Trail. We began in 1901 with an image taken in Old Kassan, a native village. Governor Brady, Chief Sanahite, and six others, all in fine suits and hats, stand beside the 60-foot-high Sanahite pole. This was to be the first pole brought to Sitka. A ladder rests on the back of the pole, a single rope tied around the middle of the pole. Chief Sanahite and Governor Brady oversaw the collection of the Sanahite pole. The pole was donated by the chief as a memorial to his people. Brady viewed the poles as curiosities from a culture soon to be lost to modern ways. He collected them to exhibit at two world's fairs. The middle image captures a scene from one of the 1904 fairs. Five totem poles line a sidewalk in front of a native wooden house along one corner of the Alaska exhibit at the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition in St. Louis. Brady hoped the exhibits would attract homesteaders, tourists, and business to the new territory. After the fairs closed, Brady shipped the poles to Sitka. There, in what was the original capital of the Alaska district, the poles would be preserved in a government park in honor of their donors. Governor Brady called on his friend and local photographer, Elbridge Merrill, to plan the arrangement of the poles along the trail within the park. The third photograph, taken in 1906 by Merrill, shows the poles at their journey's end on Totem Trail. In the foreground, along the right side of the path, we see the Yadas Crest Corner, first twin pole. The wolf pole and others are seen further down the path, as the trail weaves deeper into the forest. Other local photographers made postcards of this part of Totem Trail, nicknamed Lover's Lane, to encourage tourists to travel to Sitka. Three full-color examples of these souvenirs overlay Merrill's original photograph. An inset sepia photograph of Merrill and his dog sits below the postcards with the following caption. Merrill arranged the totem poles along the trail and donated money to preserve and repair them. He became the first custodian of Sitka National Monument in 1918 for a salary of $12 a year. We are near a reproduction of one of the poles placed by Merrill, the wolf pole. A human figure sits at the top, possibly the village watchman. His arms hug his knees. He wears a funnel-shaped hat with a point at the top. Below the watchman is a wolf. Recognized by its pointed ears, the wolf stands on hind legs. Clutched between his feet, a salmon. The original pole now stands on exhibit in Totem Hall. Panel 2. Ambassadors for Alaska. For more than a century, the Totem Trail has been a Sitka landmark. Surprisingly, none of the poles came from Sitka. Their unlikely journey here represents the hopes and ambitions of politicians and native leaders. On the left side of this panel, a title, Ambassadors for Alaska. Klingit and Haida craftsmen carved the original poles for display in their villages in southeast Alaska.
Alaska Governor John Brady admired the Alaska Natives and formed friendships with many tribal members. They honored this friendship by donating their totem poles. In return, Brady promised to preserve the poles and persuade the U.S. government to provide schools and aid to their villages. A series of three sepia-toned photographs span the length of the panel. Each image illustrates a moment in the journey of these poles to Sitka, beginning with a native village, then a world's fair, and now here along Totem Trail. We begin in 1901 with an image taken in Old Kassan, a native village. Governor Brady, Chief Sanahite, and six others, all in fine suits and hats, stand beside the 60-foot-high Sanahite pole. This was to be the first pole brought to Sitka. A ladder rests on the back of the pole, a single rope tied around the middle of the pole. Chief Sanahite and Governor Brady oversaw the collection of the Sanahite pole. The pole was donated by the chief as a memorial to his people. Brady viewed the poles as curiosities from a culture soon to be lost to modern ways. He collected them to exhibit at two world's fairs. The middle image captures a scene from one of the 1904 fairs. Five totem poles line a sidewalk in front of a native wooden house along one corner of the Alaska exhibit at the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition in St. Louis. Brady hoped the exhibits would attract homesteaders, tourists, and business to the new territory. After the fairs closed, Brady shipped the poles to Sitka. There, in what was the original capital of the Alaska district, the poles would be preserved in a government park in honor of their donors. Governor Brady called on his friend and local photographer, Elbridge Merrill, to plan the arrangement of the poles along the trail within the park. The third photograph taken in 1906 by Merrill, shows the poles at their journey's end on Totem Trail. In the foreground, along the right side of the path, we see the Yadas Crest Corner, first twin pole. The wolf pole and others are seen further down the path, as the trail weaves deeper into the forest. Other local photographers made postcards of this part of Totem Trail, nicknamed Lover's Lane, to encourage tourists to travel to Sitka. Three full-color examples of these souvenirs overlay Merrill's original photograph. An inset sepia photograph of Merrill and his dog sits below the postcards with the following caption. Merrill arranged the totem poles along the trail and donated money to preserve and repair them. He became the first custodian of Sitka National Monument in 1918 for a salary of $12 a year. We are near a reproduction of one of the poles placed by Merrill, the wolf pole. A human figure sits at the top, possibly the village watchman. His arms hug his knees. He wears a funnel-shaped hat with a point at the top. Below the watchman is a wolf. Recognized by its pointed ears, the wolf stands on hind legs. Clutched between his feet, a salmon. The original pole now stands on exhibit in Totem Hall. Panel 3. Carved History Originally, totem poles weren't placed along a forest trail like this one. Instead, they stood in villages near the ocean where travelers could easily see them. In addition to advertising the wealth and prestige of the owner, these monuments commemorated important people, events, and legends. A small line graphic at the bottom left of this panel identifies our location on the trail near three replica totem poles. The left side of this panel prominently displays each of these three poles on a tan background in three-dimensional image. Behind you is the raven shark pole, a legend pole. While it may represent the clan symbols of the Klingit patron's wife, it may also symbolize the raven shark legend. 
Clingit artist Tommy Jimmy carved this replica pole in 1978. In front of you to the left of the trail is the Trader Legend pole, a ridicule pole. At the top is a white man, and below are images representing thievery. This pole is a replica carved between 1938 and 1942. Although the original story associated with this pole is forgotten, when the pole was recarved, the images became associated with a dishonest Sitka trader. This pole lives on with a new story. Farther up the trail on the right is one of two Yadas Crest corner poles. These poles originally stood at each corner of the Yadas clan house in Old Kazan, and represent the symbols of that clan. Steve Brown and Klingit carver Nathan Jackson carved this replica in 1982. John Baranovich of Old Kassan donated the original Yadas Crest poles to Governor John Brady in 1903. The right-hand portion of the panel is a photograph of the original Yadas Crest corner poles, taken in 1901 at Old Kassan, a former Haida village. The view is from the water, facing back to shore. Over a dozen totem poles stand among rows of single-story cedar houses. Two white rectangular boxes have been overlaid on the image to outline and highlight the Yadas Crest corner poles along the shoreline. What exactly do the poles mean? Often we don't know. The meaning may have changed over time or been forgotten. The story may be sacred to be shared with only clan members. Even in the past, the stories might have been so private that only owners understood the meaning of their poles. Panel 3. Carved History Originally, totem poles weren't placed along a forest trail like this one. Instead, they stood in villages near the ocean where travelers could easily see them. In addition to advertising the wealth and prestige of the owner, these monuments commemorated important people, events, and legends. A small line graphic at the bottom left of this panel identifies our location on the trail near three replica totem poles. The left side of this panel prominently displays each of these three poles on a tan background in three-dimensional image. Behind you is the Raven Shark Pole, a legend pole. While it may represent the clan symbols of the Klingit patron's wife, it may also symbolize the Raven Shark legend. Klingit artist Tommy Jimmy carved this replica pole in 1978. In front of you to the left of the trail is the Trader Legend Pole, a ridicule pole. At the top is a white man, and below are images representing thievery. This pole is a replica carved between 1938 and 1942. Although the original story associated with this pole is forgotten, when the pole was recarved, the images became associated with a dishonest Sitka trader. This pole lives on with a new story. Farther up the trail on the right is one of two Yadas Crest corner poles. These poles originally stood at each corner of the Yadas clan house in Old Kassan and represent the symbols of that clan. Steve Brown and Klingit carver Nathan Jackson carved this replica in 1982. John Baranovich of Old Kassan donated the original Yadas Crest poles to Governor John Brady in 1903. The right-hand portion of the panel is a photograph of the original Yadas Crest corner poles, taken in 1901 at Old Kassan, a former Haida village. The view is from the water facing back to shore. Over a dozen totem poles stand among rows of single-story cedar houses. Two white rectangular boxes have been overlaid on the image to outline and highlight the Yadas Crest corner poles along the shoreline. What exactly do the poles mean? Often we don't know. The meaning may have changed over time or been forgotten. The story may be sacred to be shared with only clan members. Even in the past, the stories might have been so private that only owners understood the meaning of their poles. Panel 4. Keeping Memories Alive Totem poles were never meant to last forever. Like us, they have a lifespan. Historically, after standing for decades, they eventually decayed and returned to the earth. A title at the top of the panel, 
keeping memories alive. Today, the National Park Service is responsible for preserving these iconic poles. When preservation of the original pole is not possible, replicas are commissioned. Displaying the skill and style of each master carver, replicas ensure that both the art form and the essence of each pole survives. Two of these replica poles stand off the trail to either side of this panel. When facing the panel, to the left, tucked in the trees toward the ocean, is the Raven Memorial Pole. Raven sits atop this pole alone. The rest of the pole remains an undecorated column. It appears smooth from a distance, but get closer, and you can feel the marks left by the carver's traditional adze tool. George Fedorov and Ralph Branson carved this replica in 1959, after it had accidentally burned during a school picnic earlier that year. An image of this pole frames the left side of the panel, along with a photograph of the memorial pole in its original location, on an open ridge behind Tuxican Village around 1903. Native Alaskans carved memorial poles like this one to honor a clan member. Some memorial poles were mortuary poles, which held the ashes of the deceased in a cavity at the back. To the right, across the trail against the forest edge, stands the Kanak Adi, or Raven Crest Pole. The original pole was restored in 1939 by the Civilian Conservation Corps. Nathan Jackson and Stephen Brown then carved this replica in 1983, using both original photographs taken by E.W. Merrill as a guide. This pole may be a crest pole, or it may tell the story of the raven and the whale. An image of this pole frames the right side of the panel, along with a photograph of the pole in its original location, among the houses of Tuxacon Village, around 1903. In the center of the panel, a photograph of Klingit master carver Nathan Jackson, taken in 1982. He carves a replica of the Yadas Corner Pole. The massive pole lays horizontally. Much of its surface has been carved in deep, curving furrows. Jackson stands on the left side of the pole in a long-sleeved shirt and overalls. He bends slightly at the waist. In his left hand, a chisel. His right hand guides the tool over the surface of the wood. Most of the poles along Totem Trail are replicas. The oldest poles are in Totem Hall or at the Outdoor Totem Exhibit near the Visitor Center. Panel 4. Keeping Memories Alive Totem poles were never meant to last forever. Like us, they have a lifespan. Historically, after standing for decades, they eventually decayed and returned to the earth. A title at the top of the panel, Keeping Memories Alive. Today, the National Park Service is responsible for preserving these iconic poles. When preservation of the original pole is not possible, replicas are commissioned. Displaying the skill and style of each master carver, replicas ensure that both the art form and the essence of each pole survives. Two of these replica poles stand off the trail to either side of this panel. When facing the panel, to the left, tucked in the trees toward the ocean, is the Raven Memorial Pole. Raven sits atop this pole alone. The rest of the pole remains an undecorated column. It appears smooth from a distance, but get closer, and you can feel the marks left by the carver's traditional adze tool. George Fedorov and Ralph Branson carved this replica in 1959, after it had accidentally burned during a school picnic earlier that year. An image of this pole frames the left side of the panel, along with a photograph of the memorial pole in its original location, on an open ridge behind Tuxican Village around 1903. Native Alaskans carved memorial poles like this one to honor a clan member. Some memorial poles were mortuary poles, which held the ashes of the deceased in a cavity at the back. To the right, across the trail against the forest edge, stands the Kanak Adi, or Raven Crest Pole. The original pole was restored in 1939 by the Civilian Conservation Corps. Nathan Jackson and Stephen Brown then carved this replica in 1983 using both original photographs taken by E.W. Merrill as a guide. This pole may be a crest pole, or it may tell the story of the raven and the whale. An image of this pole frames the right side of the panel, along with a photograph of the pole in its original location, 
among the houses of Tuxacan Village around 1903. In the center of the panel, a photograph of Klingit master carver Nathan Jackson, taken in 1982. He carves a replica of the Yadas corner pole. The massive pole lays horizontally. Much of its surface has been carved in deep, curving furrows. Jackson stands on the left side of the pole in a long-sleeved shirt and overalls. He bends slightly at the waist. In his left hand, a chisel. His right hand guides the tool over the surface of the wood. Most of the poles along Totem Trail are replicas. The oldest poles are in Totem Hall or at the Outdoor Totem Exhibit near the Visitor Center. Panel 5, Riches from the Sea Rocky flats of beach and the waters of Sitka Sound lay before us. Cruise ships often anchor between this shore and the forested islands about a half a mile across the water. A title on the top left of this panel reads, Riches from the Sea. People have coveted the abundant resources in these waters for thousands of years. Local Klingit fished, hunted, gathered food, and traded salmon, seal oil, and herring eggs with other Native Americans. A close-up color photograph of a yak or sea otter greets us. These small marine mammals belong to the weasel family, average four feet in length, and can weigh 65 pounds. This otter floats on its back, front feet folded across its chest, head turned towards us. Its small black eyes, dark triangular nose, and white whiskers contrast with rich golden brown fur. Otters changed the course of history here. Over 250 years ago, European fur traders started searching Alaska's waters for sea otters. Their pelts, known as soft gold, were sold in China where they were a sign of wealth and prestige. Good quality pelts sold for up to 10 times what they were worth in Alaska. On the right side of this panel, two maps illustrate our location in Sitka in broader geographical and historical context. The first map, a small circular inset to the right of the otter, shows our protected location along the most interior edge of Sitka Sound. Mount Edgecombe, the dormant volcano that is visible from here on a clear day, marks the entrance to the sound. A caption beside the map further explains why this region was desired. Text reads, Location, location, location. Direct access to the Pacific Ocean, naturally protected port, abundant fishing and food gathering. Next, a large map of eastern Russia, Alaska, and western North America stretches across the top right of the panel. On the map, 25 traditional three-bar crosses of the Russian Orthodox Church mark the location of Russian settlements throughout the two continents. Three of the 25 crosses are located in the traditional Klingit lands, an area that covers all of southeast Alaska. At this time, Sitka was called New Archangel by the Russians and was the capital of Russian America. Panel text explains further. Russian traders and explorers followed the sea otters eastward to Alaska, where they first encountered native Alaskans in 1741. From 1790 to 1820, Russians traded more than 175,000 sea otter pelts. The Russian-American company was closely tied to the Russian imperial government and established these hunting and trading outposts from the Aleutian Islands to the Hawaiian Islands, including Fort Ross near present-day San Francisco. Stop by the visitor center to feel the soft gold of a sea otter pelt. Panel 5. Riches from the Sea Rocky flats of beach and the waters of Sitka Sound lay before us. Cruise ships often anchor between this shore and the forested islands about a half a mile across the water. A title on the top left of this panel reads, Riches from the Sea. People have coveted the abundant resources in these waters for thousands of years. Local Klingit fished, hunted, gathered food, and traded salmon, seal oil, and herring eggs with other Native Americans. A close-up color photograph of a yak or sea otter greets us. These small marine mammals belong to the weasel family, average four feet in length, and can weigh 65 pounds. This otter floats on its back, front feet folded across its chest, head turned towards us, its small black eyes, dark triangular nose, and white whiskers contrast with rich golden brown fur. Otters changed the course of history here. Over 250 years ago, European fur traders started searching Alaska's waters for sea otters. Their pelts, known as soft gold, were sold in China where they were a sign of wealth and prestige. 
Good quality pelts sold for up to 10 times what they were worth in Alaska. On the right side of this panel, two maps illustrate our location in Sitka in broader geographical and historical context. The first map, a small circular inset to the right of the otter, shows our protected location along the most interior edge of Sitka Sound. Mount Edgecombe, the dormant volcano that is visible from here on a clear day, marks the entrance to the sound. A caption beside the map further explains why this region was desired. Text reads, Location, location, location. Direct access to the Pacific Ocean, naturally protected port, abundant fishing and food gathering. Next, a large map of eastern Russia, Alaska, and western North America stretches across the top right of the panel. On the map, 25 traditional three-bar crosses of the Russian Orthodox Church mark the location of Russian settlements throughout the two continents. Three of the 25 crosses are located in the traditional Klingit lands, an area that covers all of southeast Alaska. At this time, Sitka was called New Archangel by the Russians and was the capital of Russian America. Panel text explains further. Russian traders and explorers followed the sea otters eastward to Alaska, where they first encountered native Alaskans in 1741. From 1790 to 1820, Russians traded more than 175,000 sea otter pelts. The Russian-American company was closely tied to the Russian imperial government and established these hunting and trading outposts from the Aleutian Islands to the Hawaiian Islands, including Fort Ross near present-day San Francisco. Stop by the visitor center to feel the soft gold of a sea otter pelt. Panel 6. Ready for the Russians' return. An aerial map on the right side of this panel illustrates that we are near the end of a narrow strip of forested land that is surrounded on three sides by the waters of the Indian River and the ocean. Just beyond this panel, a short gravel path takes us to an open grassy clearing where the Kiksadi Klingit Fort of Young Saplings once stood, Fort Shiskinu. The exact location of the completely decomposed wooden fort is unknown. Panel title reads, Ready for the Russians' Return. After the Russians were driven out of Sitka in 1802, Klingit shaman Shtinuk predicted that they would return. He urged the clan to build a new fortification strong enough to withstand cannon fire. The Kiks Adi chose this area for their new fort because it was close to food and water, but out of range of guns fired from Russian ships. When the ships appeared near the mouth of Indian River in October 1804, Kiks Adi preparations were put to the test. Armed with muskets and cannon, the Kiks Adi Klingit defended themselves from Russian assault. After six days of Russian bombardment, the Kiks Adi were low on ammunition. Leaving the fort after dark, they marched north to Peril Strait. The left side of the panel displays a computer-generated illustration of what the fort may have looked like. Labels describe the walls to be 240 feet or 75 meters long and 165 feet or 50 meters wide. Enclosed within the walls are 15 rectangular houses of varying size made of the same sapling materials. Fish are laid out on the rooftops. Captions read, The Kicks Adi put fish on top of their houses to attract birds so that the fort would look abandoned. Klingit oral tradition describes fort walls made of strong young trees, angled to deflect fire from land-based cannon. Firing ports for cannon and muskets were cut into the walls. The Russian naval captain, Yuri Lizyansky, described and illustrated the fort in his 1814 book, A Voyage Around the World. He writes, The fort was in a regular square, its longest side looking toward the sea. It was constructed of wood so thick and strong that shot from my guns could not penetrate it at the short distance of a cable's length. At the bottom, an illustration of the Russian warship Neva, a three-masted sailing ship. Off the stern waves a white flag bearing a large blue X, the flag of the Imperial Russian Navy. Today, in this clearing, stands the Katlian Pole, a memorial to those Kiksadi people who lost their lives in the conflict. Carved in 1999, it is named after the legendary Kiksadi warrior who led the battle. Panel 6. 
ready for the Russians' return. An aerial map on the right side of this panel illustrates that we are near the end of a narrow strip of forested land that is surrounded on three sides by the waters of the Indian River and the ocean. Just beyond this panel, a short gravel path takes us to an open grassy clearing where the Kixudi Klingit Fort of Young Saplings once stood. Fort Shiskinu. The exact location of the completely decomposed wooden fort is unknown. Panel title reads, Ready for the Russians' Return. After the Russians were driven out of Sitka in 1802, Klingit shaman Stunuk predicted that they would return. He urged the clan to build a new fortification strong enough to withstand cannon fire. The Kiks Adi chose this area for their new fort because it was close to food and water, but out of range of guns fired from Russian ships. When the ships appeared near the mouth of Indian River in October 1804, Kix Adi preparations were put to the test. Armed with muskets and cannon, the Kix Adi Klingit defended themselves from Russian assault. After six days of Russian bombardment, the Kix Adi were low on ammunition. Leaving the fort after dark, they marched north to Peril Strait. The left side of the panel displays a computer-generated illustration of what the fort may have looked like. Labels describe the walls to be 240 feet or 75 meters long and 165 feet or 50 meters wide. Enclosed within the walls are 15 rectangular houses of varying size made of the same sapling materials. Fish are laid out on the rooftops. Captions read, the Kicks Adi put fish on top of their houses to attract birds so that the fort would look abandoned. Klingit oral tradition describes fort walls made of strong young trees, angled to deflect fire from land-based cannon. Firing ports for cannon and muskets were cut into the walls. The Russian naval captain, Yuri Lizyansky, described and illustrated the fort in his 1814 book, A Voyage Around the World. He writes, the fort was in a regular square, its longest side looking toward the sea. It was constructed of wood so thick and strong that shot from my guns could not penetrate it at the short distance of a cable's length. At the bottom, an illustration of the Russian warship Neva, a three-masted sailing ship. Off the stern waves a white flag bearing a large blue X, the flag of the Imperial Russian Navy. Today, in this clearing, stands the Katlian Pole, a memorial to those Kixadi people who lost their lives in the conflict. Carved in 1999, it is named after the legendary Kixadi warrior who led the battle. Panel 7. Who will keep this land? Here, the fresh water of the Indian River empties into the salt water of the Pacific Ocean. This is where Russians and Kixadi battled for Sitka. The panel is divided into two sections to illustrate the battle. First, on the left, the Russians align their fleet of ships into position at the mouth of the Indian River, and later they wade ashore, where the Kixadi warriors lead a counterattack. Panel title reads, Who will keep this land? Two twists of fate spelled disaster for the Kixadi in 1804. The unexpected arrival of the Russian frigate Neva, and the loss of the Klingit canoe bearing their ammunition and young leaders. A painting on the left depicts the Russian fleet in Sitka Sound. Three tall ships come into view in full sail, each ship towed into position by fifty or more Alutic and Aleut kayaks. Ropes are tied from each kayak to one of the Russian sailing vessels. In each kayak sits two men, paddles in hand. Caption reads, They pulled with uncommon strength. Confident of victory, Russian sailors boldly waded ashore near here in 1804 in a frontal attack on the Kix Adi fort located close by. 
Hidden behind floating logs, the Kix Adi warriors counterattacked, led by Katlian, wielding the blacksmith's hammer he took when the Kix Adi drove the Russians out in 1802. The painting on the right highlights the action of this counterattack. We view the scene from the shore among the Kix Adi warriors. Distant mountains provide a backdrop to the Russian ships and Aliyut kayaks. A group of 20 or more Russian midshipmen and Alutic and Aliyut men approach on foot from the water's edge. They wave swords and shoot guns and arrows toward the Kix Adi. Coming from the right, Katlian runs towards the soldiers. He grips the blacksmith's hammer firmly in his right hand, holding it like a torch. His left arm is up, fist clenched to shield his face. His chest is bare, except for a gray animal pelt that drapes like a sash. He wears the raven helmet. Only his eyes can be seen. A Kix Adi warrior lies down behind a fallen log. Some stand in front of Katlian and shoot guns. Others hold spears. Three that surround Katlian also wear painted wooden helmets bearing animal or human faces, and chest armor made of vertical wooden slats strapped to leather or armor of thick animal hides. Text continues. After the counterattack, the Russians regrouped and laid siege. After six days and running low on ammunition, the Kix Adi left the fort and marched north to Peril Strait. There they set up a trade blockade while continuing to hunt, fish, and gather wild food near Sitka Sound. The Kix Adi settled again permanently in Sitka by 1820, and they remain here to this day. A.P. Johnson, a Kix Adi elder, retells the Battle of 1804. When the canoe blew up with all the ammunition and the powder which they had saved for a long time blew up, they no longer had anything to fight with. A photograph of Katlian's hammer and the raven helmet is shown. Both are revered clan possessions that continue to be used in Klingit ceremonies today. The hammer is on display at the visitor center, and the raven helmet is kept at the Sheldon Jackson Museum. Panel 7. Who will keep this land? Here, the fresh water of the Indian River empties into the salt water of the Pacific Ocean. This is where Russians and Kix Udi battled for Sitka. The panel is divided into two sections to illustrate the battle. First on the left, the Russians align their fleet of ships into position at the mouth of the Indian River, and later they wade ashore where the Kix Adi warriors lead a counterattack. Panel title reads, Who Will Keep This Land? Two twists of fate spelled disaster for the Kix Adi in 1804. The unexpected arrival of the Russian frigate Neva and the loss of the Klingit canoe bearing their ammunition and young leaders. A painting on the left depicts the Russian fleet in Sitka Sound. Three tall ships come into view in full sail, each ship towed into position by fifty or more Alutic and Aliut kayaks. Ropes are tied from each kayak to one of the Russian sailing vessels. In each kayak sits two men, paddles in hand. Caption reads, They pulled with uncommon strength. Confident of victory, Russian sailors boldly waded ashore near here in 1804 in a frontal attack on the Kix Adi fort located close by. Hidden behind floating logs, the Kix Adi warriors counterattacked, led by Katlian, wielding the blacksmith's hammer he took when the Kix Adi drove the Russians out in 1802. The painting on the right highlights the action of this counterattack. We view the scene from the shore among the Kix Udi warriors. Distant mountains provide a backdrop to the Russian ships and Aleut kayaks. A group of 20 or more Russian midshipmen and Alutic and Aleut men approach on foot from the water's edge. They wave swords and shoot guns and arrows toward the Kix Udi. Coming from the right, Katlian runs towards the soldiers. He grips the blacksmith's hammer firmly in his right hand, holding it like a torch. His left arm is up, fist clenched to shield his face. His chest is bare, except for a gray animal pelt that drapes like a sash. He wears the raven helmet. Only his eyes can be seen. 
A Kixuddy warrior lies down behind a fallen log. Some stand in front of Katlian and shoot guns. Others hold spears. Three that surround Katlian also wear painted wooden helmets bearing animal or human faces and chest armor made of vertical wooden slats strapped to leather or armor of thick animal hides. Text continues. After the counterattack, the Russians regrouped and laid siege. After six days and running low on ammunition, the Kicks Adi left the fort and marched north to Peril Strait. There they set up a trade blockade while continuing to hunt, fish, and gather wild food near Sitka Sound. The Kicks Adi settled again permanently in Sitka by 1820, and they remain here to this day. A.P. Johnson, a Kicks Adi elder, retells the Battle of 1804. When the canoe blew up with all the ammunition and the powder which they had saved for a long time blew up, they no longer had anything to fight with. A photograph of Katlian's hammer and the raven helmet is shown. Both are revered clan possessions that continue to be used in Klingit ceremonies today. The hammer is on display at the visitor's center, and the raven helmet is kept at the Sheldon Jackson Museum. Panel 8. Putting Away Grief We are at the edge of the clearing where the Kixadi fort of young saplings once stood. Here, in 1804, the Sitka Kixadi clan challenged the Russian claim to their homeland. In the years since, Klingit have held ceremonies and raised memorials to their ancestors who suffered in that conflict. At center, panel title reads, Putting Away Grief. In 1999, the Kix Adi and other Raven clans commissioned a totem pole to honor Katlian and other ancestors who fought in the Battle of 1804. Carved by Tommy Joseph and Fred Beltran, the 35-foot pole was raised by the Sitka community here in this clearing in the traditional manner. A full-color photograph of the left third of the panel shows the raising of the pole. Many people are gathered in the clearing. Their backs are to us as they stand in a single file line. Each grips the rope. They raise the Katlian memorial totem pole together. The carvings on the pole are painted with traditional colors of black, blue, green, and red. The top figure is Raven, representing the whole of the Raven moiety. Below Raven are five Raven clan crests. From top to bottom they are Wormwood, Sakai Salmon, Dog Salmon, Beaver, and Frog. Frog is the crest of the Kix Adi clan. Frog holds a Raven helmet to represent the helmet worn by Katlian during battle. In 2004, on the bicentennial of the battle, Klingit, Kix Adi, and Russian representatives held a new ceremony on the sacred ground to put away grief and make peace. A photograph shows a direct descendant of early Russian leader Alex Baranov joining Klingit leaders in a reconciliation ceremony. Two other memorials near this site are pictured. Both honor Russian and Klingit losses to bring balance to the memory of the battle. Each memorial is a black, rectangular plaque with raised gold lettering mounted to a large stone that lies on the ground. In 2004, a traditional three-bar cross and the memorial plaque for Russian sailors and Aleut hunters was placed directly across the river within park boundaries along the Russian Memorial Loop Trail. Text on the plaque reads, Erected in memory of the Russian sailors and Aleut hunters killed during the battle with the Kixadi clan of the Klingit Indians in 1804. In 2011, the Kixadi clan memorial plaque was placed in this clearing. Text on the plaque reads, the Kix Adi clan of the Klingit tribe fought here against invading forces in 1804. The Kix Adi men and women sought to preserve and protect their land and its resources for this and future generations. At this point, the Kix Adi mark the beginning of the survival march and the dawn of a new era. Panel 8. Putting Away Grief We are at the edge of the clearing where the Kix Adi fort of young saplings once stood. Here in 1804, the Sitka Kixadi clan challenged the Russian claim to their homeland. In the years since, Klingit have held ceremonies and raised memorials to their ancestors who suffered in that conflict. At center, panel title reads, Putting Away Grief. 
1999, the Kix Adi and other Raven clans commissioned a totem pole to honor Katlian and other ancestors who fought in the Battle of 1804. Carved by Tommy Joseph and Fred Beltran, the 35-foot pole was raised by the Sitka community here in this clearing in the traditional manner. A full-color photograph of the left third of the panel shows the raising of the pole. Many people are gathered in the clearing. Their backs are to us as they stand in a single-file line. Each grips the rope. They raise the Katlian Memorial Totem Pole together. The carvings on the pole are painted with traditional colors of black, blue-green, and red. The top figure is Raven, representing the whole of the Raven moiety. Below Raven are five Raven clan crests. From top to bottom, they are Wormwood, Sockeye Salmon, Dog Salmon, Beaver, and Frog. Frog is the crest of the Kixadi clan. Frog holds a Raven helmet to represent the helmet worn by Katlian during battle. In 2004, on the bicentennial of the battle, Klingit, Kixadi, and Russian representatives held a new ceremony on this sacred ground to put away grief and make peace. A photograph shows a direct descendant of early Russian leader Alex Baranov, joining Klingit leaders in a reconciliation ceremony. Two other memorials near this site are pictured. Both honor Russian and Klingit losses to bring balance to the memory of the battle. Each memorial is a black, rectangular plaque with raised gold lettering mounted to a large stone that lies on the ground. In 2004, a traditional three-bar cross and the memorial plaque for Russian sailors and Aleut hunters was placed directly across the river within park boundaries along the Russian Memorial Loop Trail. Text on the plaque reads, Erected in memory of the Russian sailors and Aleut hunters killed during the battle with the Kix-Adi clan of the Klingit Indians in 1804. In 2011, the Kix-Adi clan memorial plaque was placed in this clearing. Text on the plaque reads, The Kix-Adi clan of the Klingit tribe fought here against invading forces in 1804. The Kix-Adi men and women sought to preserve and protect their land and its resources for this and future generations. At this point, the Kix-Adi mark the beginning of the survival march and the dawn of a new era. Panel 9. Feeding the Forest The artwork in shades of greens, browns, and yellows illustrates the richness of life in the waters and along the shores of the landscape before us, the Indian River. Our perspective is from the water's edge. We face the river. Spawning pink salmon jump and splash as they swim further upstream, where the waters run faster and cooler. The deep greens of spruce and hemlock trees line the rocky shore. A flock of glaucous-winged gulls hover as a bald eagle swoops down to grab a salmon. Another eagle perches in a nearby tree, enjoying its catch. Listen for the loud, vibrant chirps and gull-like squeals of the bald eagle. A variety of other birds rely on the waters and the forest for food and shelter. A group of four common merganser float by, with their tufted red heads and long narrow beaks, as harlequin ducks, with their clown-like red, black, and white stripes, observe the action on the water's surface. An American dipper scurries along the shoreline in search of salmon eggs. A varied thrush sings flute-like melodies from the forest interior, as the raven announces that he has found a meal. A dead salmon along the shore. Listen for the loud croak and hollow cop cop of the raven. A small weasel-like mammal, an American marten, drags the tail of a salmon off into the woods. 
Among the diverse understory plants of the forest edge are lush ferns, the broad umbrella-like leaves of the Devil's Club, and scattered patches of low-growing wildflowers. Banana slugs, the size of your finger, make trails along the damp forest floor. In the meadow across the river, two Sitka black-tailed deer stand at the edge of tall marsh grasses. A brown bear wades into the shallows, gripping a salmon in its teeth. Text continues. The river before you has been a food source for people and animals for millennia. The salmon that first attracted bears and other wildlife also drew the Klingit who settled along the riverbanks. The salmon feed the temperate rainforest as well. Scraps of fish carried inland by bears and birds decompose, transferring nutrients from the sea to the soil. Listen now to an excerpt from Mosquito Narrative, a Klingit legend. The salmon, from the ocean, they would come up for us to eat the salmon. Panel 9. Feeding the Forest The artwork, in shades of greens, browns, and yellows, illustrates the richness of life in the waters and along the shores of the landscape before us, the Indian River. Our perspective is from the water's edge. We face the river. Spawning pink salmon jump and splash as they swim further upstream, where the waters run faster and cooler. The deep greens of spruce and hemlock trees line the rocky shore. A flock of glaucous-winged gulls hover as a bald eagle swoops down to grab a salmon. Another eagle perches in a nearby tree, enjoying its catch. Listen for the loud, vibrant chirps and gull-like squeals of the bald eagle. A variety of other birds rely on the waters and the forest for food and shelter. A group of four common merganser float by with their tufted red heads and long, narrow beaks, as harlequin ducks, with their clown-like red, black, and white stripes, observe the action on the water's surface. An American dipper scurries along the shoreline in search of salmon eggs. A varied thrush sings flute-like melodies from the forest interior, as the raven announces that he has found a meal. A dead salmon along the shore. Listen for the loud crock and hollow cope cope of the raven. A small weasel-like mammal, an American marten, drags the tail of a salmon off into the woods. Among the diverse understory plants of the forest edge are lush ferns, the broad umbrella-like leaves of the Devil's Club, and scattered patches of low-growing wildflowers. Banana slugs, the size of your finger, make trails along the damp forest floor. In the meadow across the river, two Sitka black-tailed deer stand at the edge of tall marsh grasses. A brown bear wades into the shallows, gripping a salmon in its teeth. Text continues. The river before you has been a food source for people and animals for millennia. The salmon that first attracted bears and other wildlife also drew the Klingit who settled along the riverbanks. The salmon feed the temperate rainforest as well. Scraps of fish carried inland by bears and birds decompose, transferring nutrients from the sea to the soil. Listen now to an excerpt from Mosquito Narrative, a Klingit legend. The salmon, from the ocean, they would come up for us to eat the salmon. Panel 10, A River of Salmon We are here along the banks of the Indian River. The riverbed is rocky and the water moves swiftly. Near here was a Klingit summer fish camp. The Klingit people have come to Indian River to catch salmon for thousands of years. A pencil illustration depicts a Klingit man knee-deep in the river. His skin is bare, except for a square loincloth tied about his waist. In his hands, he aims a three-pronged spear at the surface of the water. Below the surface, a salmon. Text continues. Everything around us depends on the Indian River. 
This river provides habitat and food for the plants and animals of the water, land, and air. A healthy stream becomes the foundation of a healthy forest. In late summer and fall, the river is teeming with salmon swimming upstream to lay eggs and die. Salmon need healthy streams like this one with good water flow to spawn and grow. Plants and animals here depend on the salmon for food and nutrients. Along the bottom of this panel is a full-scale dimensional model of an adult male pink salmon. The skin is dark olive green across its back with a bold streak of pink that runs along the sides of the body, fading to a white underbelly. Pinks outnumber all species in this river. Tens of thousands of fish return every year. An average adult pink salmon weighs three and a half to five pounds, can be 20 to 25 inches long, with a lifespan of two years. Feel the fish. This pink salmon is at the end of its life cycle. Its long journey from the ocean up this river was a difficult one. Feel the cuts and gouges on the skin caused by the banging into rocks, negotiating rapids, and battling with other males. As we near the top of the back, feel the protruding rise or hump. During spawning, male pink salmon develop this distinctive hump, which may attract female fish and intimidate rival males. Text and illustrations that follow highlight the life cycle of the pink salmon. Text reads, migrating adults may travel hundreds of miles to spawn in their freshwater birthplace. Salmon don't eat once they enter freshwater. Instead, they focus on finding the perfect spot to lay and fertilize eggs. Then they guard the eggs until they die of exhaustion. From left to right across the panel, four stages of the pink salmon life cycle are illustrated. Egg, alevin, fry, and adult. First, hundreds of pea-sized, bright orange to reddish translucent eggs are laid in a depression made by the female. Pink salmon females can lay over 2,000 eggs, but up to 85% die before hatching. Eggs hatch in five to eight months. Next, one-inch-long hatchlings called elevens stay hidden in the gravel, feeding from their egg sacs for several weeks. Once the egg sac is used up, the fish are then called fry. They leave their gravel nest in search of food and migrate to the estuary, where fresh and saltwater mix. There, they adapt to a saltwater environment before entering the sea. Finally, ocean adults spend 18 months, their adult life, feeding and growing in the ocean. Then they return to lay and fertilize eggs in the freshwater streams where they were born. All Pacific salmon die after spawning. Pink and chum salmon are the most common fish in Indian River. Chum live twice as long as pinks and can weigh three times more. Mid-July through September is the suggested best time to experience their migration. Also found here are Chinook and Coho salmon, Steelhead and Rainbow Trout, and Dolly Varden Char. Some words of attention. No fishing for pink, chum, sockeye, and coho salmon between the Sawmill Creek Road Bridge and the freshwater boundary. Now listen to an audio description of a short video taken at the river during peak salmon migration. Greenbacks at a rocky riverbed, with a few salmon quickly swimming and splashing. The water bubbles with the tips of their top fins and tails, looking down on hundreds of gray salmon wiggling in place in the clear shallow water. The salmon all face against the current. The salmon are pinkish gray with small black spots. On their bellies are white blotches and pink on the edge of their gills and top fin. They are thin and narrow with a hump on their back that sticks out of the water. Underwater, they open and close their mouths repeatedly while swimming in place. Green backs at a rocky riverbed with a few salmon quickly swimming and splashing. The water bubbles with the tips of their top fins and tails, looking down on hundreds of gray salmon wiggling in place in the clear shallow water. The salmon all face against the current. The salmon are pinkish gray with small black spots. On their bellies are white blotches and pink on the edge of their gills and top fin. They are thin and narrow with a hump on their back that sticks out of the water. Underwater, they open and close their mouths repeatedly while swimming in place. Panel 10. A River of Salmon we are here along the banks of the Indian River. The riverbed is rocky and the water moves swiftly. Near here was a Klingit summer fish camp. The Klingit people have come to Indian River to catch salmon for thousands of years. A pencil illustration depicts a Klingit man knee-deep in the river. His skin is bare, except for a square loincloth tied about his waist. In his hands, he aims a three-pronged spear at the surface of the water. 
Below the surface, a salmon. Text continues. Everything around us depends on the Indian River. This river provides habitat and food for the plants and animals of the water, land, and air. A healthy stream becomes the foundation of a healthy forest. In late summer and fall, the river is teeming with salmon swimming upstream to lay eggs and die. Salmon need healthy streams like this one with good water flow to spawn and grow. Plants and animals here depend on the salmon for food and nutrients. Along the bottom of this panel is a full-scale dimensional model of an adult male pink salmon. The skin is dark olive green across its back with a bold streak of pink that runs along the sides of the body, fading to a white underbelly. Pinks outnumber all species in this river. Tens of thousands of fish return every year. An average adult pink salmon weighs three and a half to five pounds, can be 20 to 25 inches long, with a lifespan of two years. Feel the fish. This pink salmon is at the end of its life cycle. Its long journey from the ocean up this river was a difficult one. Feel the cuts and gouges on the skin caused by the banging into rocks, negotiating rapids, and battling with other males. As we near the top of the back, feel the protruding rise or hump. During spawning, male pink salmon develop this distinctive hump, which may attract female fish and intimidate rival males. Text and illustrations that follow highlight the life cycle of the pink salmon. Text reads, Migrating adults may travel hundreds of miles to spawn in their freshwater birthplace. Salmon don't eat once they enter freshwater. Instead, they focus on finding the perfect spot to lay and fertilize eggs. Then they guard the eggs until they die of exhaustion. From left to right across the panel, four stages of the pink salmon life cycle are illustrated. Egg, alevin, fry, and adult. First, hundreds of pea-sized, bright orange to reddish translucent eggs are laid in a depression made by the female. Pink salmon females can lay over 2,000 eggs, but up to 85% die before hatching. Eggs hatch in 5 to 8 months. Next, one-inch-long hatchlings called alevins stay hidden in the gravel, feeding from their egg sacs for several weeks. Once the egg sac is used up, the fish are then called fry. They leave their gravel nest in search of food and migrate to the estuary, where fresh and salt water mix. There, they adapt to a saltwater environment before entering the sea. Finally, ocean adults spend 18 months, their adult life, feeding and growing in the ocean. Then they return to lay and fertilize eggs in the freshwater streams where they were born. All Pacific salmon die after spawning. Pink and chum salmon are the most common fish in Indian River. Chum live twice as long as pinks and can weigh three times more. Mid-July through September is the suggested best time to experience their migration. Also found here are Chinook and Coho salmon, steelhead and rainbow trout, and Dolly Varden char. Some words of attention. No fishing for pink, chum, sockeye, and coho salmon between the Sawmill Creek Road Bridge and the freshwater boundary. Now listen to an audio description of a short video taken at the river during peak salmon migration. Panel 11, our responsibility to preserve. We face the totem conservation exhibit against the uphill end of the visitor center. 
On display, set behind a protective screen and sheltered from the elements by a roof, are three fragments of original totem poles collected by Governor John Brady. Each pole rests in a horizontal position along the length of the exhibit. First, mounted to the back wall at the top, we find the Mosquito Legend Pole. Below that, also on the wall, the Ganach Adi Ravencrest Pole. The Yadas Crest Pole runs along the floor, separated into two pieces. The colors are worn and faded. Text continues. Few native people carved totem poles by the early 1900s. As young, northwest coast native people converted to Christianity and adapted to western lifestyle, interest in traditional native art declined. When the Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, began restoring the park's poles in 1939, they hired experienced native carvers to teach young craftsmen their skills. This transfer of skills kept an important art form alive while preserving the park's totem pole collection. Pencil illustrations of the poles in this exhibit diagram specific techniques that were used to preserve the poles. The Mosquito Legend pole fragment, carved before 1900, had a lead cap installed by CCC workers to reduce decay at the top of the pole. Lead caps are still used today to keep water from soaking into the pole. Early restorers filled large cracks with wood or plaster. Over time, these fillers separated and allowed water to seep in. Canvas tacked over damaged areas reduced water exposure and slowed down decay. When possible, the craftsmen repaired the original poles, but some poles were so decayed that carvers made replicas. Wood conservators, assisted by today's carvers, replaced badly rotted portions on each end of the Yadas Crest Pole with newly carved replica parts, while its original center section remains intact. In the 1990s, National Park Service conservators cleaned and repaired the poles, treated them with a non-toxic fungal deterrent, and coated them with water repellent. They also attached the poles to new, separate support poles to prevent rot by keeping the carved areas out of contact with the ground. These preservation techniques continue today. The replica poles along the trail also require preservation. An image at the bottom of the right corner of the panel shows a park staff member on a ladder. The ladder leans against a totem pole along the trail. Balanced on a rung of the ladder is a cylindrical yellow container with a hose attachment. The man holds the hose and sprays the pole with an environmentally friendly wood preservative. Poles are treated every three to five years. Although these poles in this exhibit are protected behind a screen, you are welcome to touch each replica pole along Totem Trail. Panel 11. Our Responsibility to Preserve we face the totem conservation exhibit against the uphill end of the visitor center. On display, set behind a protective screen and sheltered from the elements by a roof, are three fragments of original totem poles collected by Governor John Brady. Each pole rests in a horizontal position along the length of the exhibit. First, mounted to the back wall at the top, we find the Mosquito Legend Pole. Below that, also on the wall, the Ganach Adi Ravencrest Pole. The Yadas Crest Pole runs along the floor, separated into two pieces. The colors are worn and faded. Text continues. Few native people carved totem poles by the early 1900s. As young, northwest coast native people converted to Christianity and adapted to western lifestyle, interest in traditional native art declined. When the Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, began restoring the park's poles in 1939, they hired experienced native carvers to teach young craftsmen their skills. This transfer of skills kept an important art form alive while preserving the park's totem pole collection. Pencil illustrations of the poles in this exhibit diagram specific techniques that were used to preserve the poles. The Mosquito Legend Pole Fragment carved before 1900, had a lead cap installed by CCC workers to reduce decay at the top of the pole. Lead caps are still used today to keep water from soaking into the pole. Early restorers filled large cracks with wood or plaster. Over time, these fillers separated and allowed water to seep in. Canvas tacked over damaged areas reduced water exposure and slowed down decay. When possible, the craftsmen repaired the original poles, but some poles were so decayed that carvers made replicas. Wood conservators, assisted by today's carvers, 
replace badly rotted portions on each end of the Yados crest pole with newly carved replica parts while its original center section remains intact. In the 1990s, National Park Service conservators cleaned and repaired the poles, treated them with a non-toxic fungal deterrent, and coated them with water repellent. They also attached the poles to new, separate support poles to prevent rot by keeping the carved areas out of contact with the ground. These preservation techniques continue today. The replica poles along the trail also require preservation. An image at the bottom of the right corner of the panel shows a park staff member on a ladder. The ladder leans against a totem pole along the trail. Balanced on a rung of the ladder is a cylindrical yellow container with a hose attachment. The man holds the hose and sprays the pole with an environmentally friendly wood preservative. Poles are treated every three to five years. Although these poles in this exhibit are protected behind a screen, you are welcome to touch each replica pole along Totem Trail. Panel 12, left side, walk through a cool rainforest. We are at the trailhead of the Totem and Russian Memorial Trails. Two upright panels mark this location. To hear an overview of the trail system and points of interest, keep listening. To learn about trail rules and trail accessibility information, touch the pen to the medallion on the panel to your right. We begin with a map of the trail system over an aerial photograph of the forest-covered park. Points of interest and totem pole locations are highlighted. Experience Totem Trail, a one-mile, 30-to-45-minute walk round trip with audio-described exhibit panels. Walk to the Russian Memorial along the Russian Memorial Loop, a three-quarter-mile, or about 30-minute, round-trip loop east of the river. The map also highlights the Riverview Trail, 0.6 miles round trip along the Indian River, and the Klingit 1804 Fort Site and Kicks of the Memorial on the Totem Trail. Panel title. Walk through a cool rainforest. Explore the other side of the Totem Trail. Temperate rainforests form where moist ocean air is trapped by coastal mountains and condenses. The oceans keep temperatures from getting too hot or cold. Sitka's temperate rainforest is cool and wet, a rare and wonderful world of huge ancient evergreen trees. A photograph of trees of varying sizes covers the panel. Along the ground lays a massive fallen tree, gnarled and moss-covered. Other trees now grow on the fallen tree, and their roots twist around it. This is an example of a nurse log, an older tree that has fallen, opening up a patch of sunshine in the canopy. Seeds that land on the decomposing log thrive in the light and rich soil. Over the image, a white circle has been placed on the trunk of a western hemlock tree to highlight the bark. Hemlock bark is often compared to overlapping strips of bacon that run vertically up the trunk. Hemlocks are easily toppled by strong winds because of their shallow roots. Young saplings are often found growing out of fallen logs. Another white circle highlights the trunk of a Sitka spruce, the Alaska State Tree. It grows to over 200 feet tall and 10 feet in diameter. Sitka spruce are only found near the coast since they need lots of rain, cool summers, and mild winters. One way to identify a Sitka spruce is by feeling for the overlapping mosaic of potato chip-shaped bark fibers. Panel 12, left side. Walk through a cool rainforest. We are at the trailhead of the Totem and Russian Memorial Trails. Two upright panels mark this location. To hear an overview of the trail system and points of interest, keep listening. To learn about trail rules and trail accessibility information, touch the pen to the medallion on the panel to your right. We begin with a map of the trail system over an aerial photograph of the forest-covered park. Points of interest and totem pole locations are highlighted. Experience Totem Trail, a one-mile, 30 to 45-minute walk round trip with audio-described exhibit panels. Walk to the Russian Memorial along the Russian Memorial Loop, a three-quarter mile, or about 30-minute, round-trip loop east of the river. The map also highlights the Riverview Trail, 0.6 miles round trip along the Indian River, and the Klingit 1804 Fort Site and Kicks Adi Memorial on the Totem Trail. Panel Title 
walk through a cool rainforest. Explore the other side of the Totem Trail. Temperate rainforests form where moist ocean air is trapped by coastal mountains and condenses. The oceans keep temperatures from getting too hot or cold. Sitka's temperate rainforest is cool and wet, a rare and wonderful world of huge ancient evergreen trees. A photograph of trees of varying sizes covers the panel. Along the ground lays a massive fallen tree, gnarled and moss-covered. Other trees now grow on the fallen tree, and their roots twist around it. This is an example of a nurse log, an older tree that has fallen, opening up a patch of sunshine in the canopy. Seeds that land on the decomposing log thrive in the light and rich soil. Over the image, a white circle has been placed on the trunk of a western hemlock tree to highlight the bark. Hemlock bark is often compared to overlapping strips of bacon that run vertically up the trunk. Hemlocks are easily toppled by strong winds because of their shallow roots. Young saplings are often found growing out of fallen logs. Another white circle highlights the trunk of a Sitka spruce, the Alaska State tree. It grows to over 200 feet tall and 10 feet in diameter. Sitka spruce are only found near the coast since they need lots of rain, cool summers, and mild winters. One way to identify a Sitka spruce is by feeling for the overlapping mosaic of potato chip-shaped bark fibers. Panel 12, right side, trailhead orientation. We are at the trailhead of the Totem and Russian Memorial Trails. Two upright panels mark this location. To learn about trail rules and trail accessibility information, keep listening. To hear an overview of the trail system and points of interest, touch the pen to the medallion on the panel to your left. We begin with this panel on the right, trail regulations. Two photographs demonstrate compliance. A woman walks her dog on leash, and a man walks alongside his bicycle. A list of rules follow. Foot traffic only. Keep pets on a leash. Clean up all pet waste. Pet waste bags are provided at all trailheads. No camping. No open alcoholic beverages. And walk bikes on the trail. Below the regulations, supplemental panels complete the trailhead orientation and illustrate trail access information. The trail surface is compacted gravel. Much of the compacted gravel surface along Totem Trail is very flat and wide, with trail width typically ranging from 5 feet to 9 feet. However, sections along the river have more variation, including areas with a 7% grade and a maximum cross slope of 3 to 7%. The Totem and Russian Memorial Trails have many areas labeled as having no obstructions. However, some areas may have exposed tree roots and vegetation. A word of caution. Remember that trail conditions may change at any time. A section of this panel is reserved for park updates and news. Please check with the Visitor Center for today's posting. Panel 12, right side. Trailhead orientation. We are at the trailhead of the Totem and Russian Memorial Trails. Two upright panels mark this location. To learn about trail rules and trail accessibility information, keep listening. To hear an overview of the trail system and points of interest, touch the pen to the medallion on the panel to your left. We begin with this panel on the right, Trail Regulations. Two photographs demonstrate compliance. A woman walks her dog on leash, and a man walks alongside his bicycle. A list of rules follow. Foot traffic only. Keep pets on a leash. Clean up all pet waste. Pet waste bags are provided at all trailheads. No camping. No open alcoholic beverages. And walk bikes on the trail. Below the regulations, supplemental panels complete the trailhead orientation and illustrate trail access information. The trail surface is compacted gravel. Much of the compacted gravel surface along Totem Trail is very flat and wide, with trail width typically ranging from 5 feet to 9 feet. 
However, sections along the river have more variation, including areas with a 7% grade and a maximum cross slope of 3 to 7%. The Totem and Russian Memorial Trails have many areas labeled as having no obstructions. However, some areas may have exposed tree roots and vegetation. A word of caution. Remember that trail conditions may change at any time. A section of this panel is reserved for park updates and news. Please check with the Visitor Center for today's posting. Panel 13, Walk Sitka. A simplified street map of Sitka spans much of the six-foot-long panel. A map highlights the location of attractions that contribute to the cultural and natural history of the area. Listed in a column on the far right side of the panel are facts about totem poles. To learn about the attractions of Sitka, keep listening. To learn more about the totem poles, touch the pin to the medallion again to trigger the totem fact audio. Below the map, over a small aerial photo of the city and its surrounding waters, a title, Walk Sitka. The best way to experience Sitka is by foot. Most attractions are just minutes away. Across the top of the panel, a strip of photographs describe seven attractions. Sitka Sound Science Center, Alaska Raptor Center, Russian Bishop's House, Sitka Historical Society and Museum, St. Michael's Cathedral, and Baranov Castle State Historic Site. Approximate walking distance from here, within the park boundary to each attraction, is displayed in minutes on the map. Let's begin here, in Sitka National Historical Park, and move right to left across the panel map, naming attractions nearest us to furthest. The Sitka Sound Science Center is five minutes away. Touch sea creatures like the ones that live in Sitka's tide pools. A killer whale skeleton is on display. Discover local scientific research. Investigate aquaculture and the fishing industry in Alaska. A seven-minute walk takes you to the Sheldon Jackson Museum. Examine the thousands of native Alaskan artifacts and works of art collected in the late 1800s by missionary Sheldon Jackson. A 15-minute walk through the park and across Sawmill Creek Road takes you to the Alaska Raptor Center, Alaska's foremost raptor hospital and educational center, where injured eagles, hawks, falcons, and owls are rehabilitated. Next, just a 15-minute walk away, visit the Russian Bishop's House, another National Park Service property. Explore one of the last remaining buildings from the Russian colonial period. Discover the legacy of Russian America and tour the refurnished quarters of the Russian Bishop. An 18-minute walk takes us to the Sitka Historical Society and Museum. Learn about Sitka's Klingit, Russian, and American history through exhibits, photographs, and artifacts. A 20-minute walk takes us to St. Michael's Cathedral. Admire ancient icons, Russian religious art, and sacred artifacts of St. Innocent Veneminov, the founder of the cathedral, all rescued when the cathedral burned in 1966. Last, Baranov Castle State Historic Site, a 30-minute walk. Climb to the top of Castle Hill, location of an early Klingit stronghold, and the site where Russia transferred ownership of Alaska to the United States in 1867. To learn more about the totem poles in this area, touch the pen to the medallion again. Panel 13. Did you know? Traditional totem poles are made from a single cedar trunk. Totem poles in Sitka are hollow in the back to make them lighter. They are mounted on support posts, which keep the carved figures off the ground and prevent rot. Red cedar is the traditional wood for carving totem poles. No red cedars grow in the Sitka area. Local carvers usually have red cedar trees harvested from the south and shipped to Sitka for carving. Traditionally, totem poles were not carved as far north as Sitka. The oldest totem poles in the park come from Haida and Klingit villages south of Sitka. Alaska Governor John Brady brought the original totem poles here in the early 1900s. Newer poles, like the Centennial Pole, from 2011, were carved specifically for the park. Totem pole carving declined in the late 1800s. Missionaries and governments discouraged the practice of native traditions. Many native children moved away to boarding schools. Skilled carvers had no work and no one to learn their craft. The Great Depression stimulated a renaissance in totem pole carving. The few remaining skilled carvers worked for the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s to teach their skills to younger tribal members. You can't read a totem pole like hieroglyphics. You must know the history of the pole and of the family that commissioned it before you can understand its meaning. And even then, some stories or meanings remain obscure. The phrase, low man on the totem pole, is misleading. Actually, the bottom figure traditionally holds the place of greatest honor. To learn more about the attractions of Sitka, touch the pen to the medallion again. Panel 13. Did you know? Traditional totem poles are made from a single cedar trunk. Totem poles in Sitka are hollow in the back to make them lighter. They are mounted on support posts, which keep the carved figures off the ground and prevent rot.
Red cedar is the traditional wood for carving totem poles. No red cedars grow in the Sitka area. Local carvers usually have red cedar trees harvested from the south and shipped to Sitka for carving. Traditionally, totem poles were not carved as far north as Sitka. The oldest totem poles in the park come from Haida and Klingit villages south of Sitka. Alaska Governor John Brady brought the original totem poles here in the early 1900s. Newer poles, like the Centennial Pole from 2011, were carved specifically for the park. Totem pole carving declined in the late 1800s. Missionaries and governments discouraged the practice of native traditions. Many native children moved away to boarding schools. Skilled carvers had no work and no one to learn their craft. The Great Depression stimulated a renaissance in totem pole carving. The few remaining skilled carvers worked for the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s to teach their skills to younger tribal members. You can't read a totem pole like hieroglyphics. You must know the history of the pole and of the family that commissioned it before you can understand its meaning. And, even then, some stories or meanings remain obscure. The phrase, low man on the totem pole, is misleading. Actually, the bottom figure traditionally holds the place of greatest honor. To learn more about the attractions of Sitka, touch the pen to the medallion again. Panel 13, Totem Pole Facts A simplified street map of Sitka spans much of this six-foot-wide panel. The map highlights the location of attractions that contribute to the cultural and natural history of the area. Listed in a column on the far right side of the panel are facts about totem poles. To learn more about the totem poles, keep listening. To learn about the attractions of Sitka, touch the pen to the medallion again to trigger the map audio. At this overlook, several totem poles are in view. Directly to our left is the Sanahite Pole, a replica of the first totem pole brought to Sitka. Chief Sanahite donated the original pole, which came from Old Kassan, in 1901 as a memorial to his people. At 56 feet tall, this replica is the tallest totem pole in the park. On either side of the Sanahite Pole stand replica Sanahite house posts. Traditionally, house posts were placed at the corners of large single-story plank houses. To our right, down the path toward the visitor center, stands the 36-foot red cedar pole, which translates roughly to our grandparents, who were the very first people to use the Indian River, and the other people who were here, too. In a column on the right side of the panel are eight totem pole facts. Panel 13. Totem Pole Facts A simplified street map of Sitka spans much of this six-foot-wide panel. The map highlights the location of attractions that contribute to the cultural and natural history of the area. Listed in a column on the far right side of the panel are facts about totem poles. To learn more about the totem poles, keep listening. To learn about the attractions of Sitka, touch the pen to the medallion again to trigger the map audio. At this overlook, several totem poles are in view. Directly to our left is the Sanahite Pole, a replica of the first totem pole brought to Sitka. Chief Sanahite donated the original pole, which came from Old Kassan, in 1901 as a memorial to his people. At 56 feet tall, this replica is the tallest totem pole in the park. On either side of the Sanahite Pole stand replica Sanahite house posts. Traditionally, House posts were placed at the corners of large single-story plank houses. To our right, down the path toward the visitor center, stands the 36-foot red cedar pole.
which translates roughly to our grandparents, who were the very first people to use the Indian River, and the other people who were here, too. In a column on the right side of the panel are eight totem pole facts. Panel 13, Walk Sitka. A simplified street map of Sitka spans much of this six-foot-long panel. A map highlights the location of attractions that contribute to the cultural and natural history of the area. Listed in a column on the far right side of the panel are facts about totem poles. To learn about the attractions of Sitka, keep listening. To learn more about the totem poles, touch the pin to the medallion again to trigger the totem fact audio. Below the map, over a small aerial photo of the city and its surrounding waters, a title, Walk Sitka. The best way to experience Sitka is by foot. Most attractions are just minutes away. Across the top of the panel, a strip of photographs describe seven attractions. Sitka Sound Science Center, Alaska Raptor Center, Russian Bishop's House, Sitka Historical Society and Museum, St. Michael's Cathedral, and Baranoff Castle State Historic Site. Approximate walking distance from here, within the park boundary to each attraction, is displayed in minutes on the map. Let's begin here in Sitka National Historical Park and move right to left across the panel map, naming attractions nearest us to furthest. The Sitka Sound Science Center is five minutes away. Touch sea creatures like the ones that live in Sitka's tide pools. A killer whale skeleton is on display. Discover local scientific research. Investigate aquaculture and the fishing industry in Alaska. A seven-minute walk takes you to the Sheldon Jackson Museum. Examine the thousands of native Alaskan artifacts and works of art collected in the late 1800s by missionary Sheldon Jackson. A 15-minute walk through the park and across Sawmill Creek Road takes you to the Alaska Raptor Center, Alaska's foremost raptor hospital and educational center, where injured eagles, hawks, falcons, and owls are rehabilitated. Next, just a 15-minute walk away, visit the Russian Bishop's House, another National Park Service property. Explore one of the last remaining buildings from the Russian colonial period. Discover the legacy of Russian America and tour the refurnished quarters of the Russian Bishop. An 18-minute walk takes us to the Sitka Historical Society and Museum. Learn about Sitka's Klingit, Russian, and American history through exhibits, photographs, and artifacts. A 20-minute walk takes us to St. Michael's Cathedral. Admire ancient icons, Russian religious art, and sacred artifacts of St. Innocent Veneminov, the founder of the cathedral, all rescued when the cathedral burned in 1966. Last, Baranoff Castle State Historic Site, a 30-minute walk. Climb to the top of Castle Hill, location of an early Klingit stronghold and the site where Russia transferred ownership of Alaska to the United States in 1867. To learn more about the totem poles in this area, touch the pen to the medallion again. Panel 14. Finding Common Ground. We stand along Lincoln Street, facing the yard of a two-story wood frame schoolhouse built in 1897. Just to the left of the school stands the Russian Bishop's House, a restored two-story building of hewn logs set on a stone foundation. It was constructed in 1842 by the Russian-American Company to serve as a regional headquarters for the Russian Orthodox Church. Learn this Russian welcome. Добро пожаловать. This Russian phrase literally means good arrival. 
and is used to greet a guest arriving at the speaker's home, town, or country. Dabro, or good, in this expression means both, that the guest is welcome, and that he or she comes with good intentions. The bishop's house is covered with horizontal boards painted the bold yellow ochre color of the Russian-American company. The hipped roof is clad with metal and painted red. It slopes down to the eaves on all four sides, looking somewhat like a flattened pyramid. Additional trim applied to each window pane forms the shape of a cross. Shed-roofed covered passages or galleries cap both ends of the building, providing entrance, storage, and shelter. The front of the building, along with these galleries, extends the total length to over 90 feet. Grass lawns run the length of the house and schoolyard. All is kept inside a rustic wooden picket fence. Panel tile reads, Finding Common Ground. A photograph of the Russian bishop's house taken around 1900 by E.W. Merrill fills the panel. Two spruce trees stand tall at the front of the house as they do today. Text continues. Russians and native Alaskans took the first tentative steps toward mutual understanding here in the Russian bishop's house. The bishop lived here alongside Klingit students and native and Creole or mixed ancestry men studying to become Orthodox priests. A group portrait is shown of 50 or so Klingit school children posing at the main entrance to the Russian bishop's house. The Russian imperial government expected the Russian Orthodox Church to oversee native education. Russian priests in Alaska learned the native languages, often helping to develop the first written form. They translated religious texts and taught native children to read and write in their own language. Native Alaskans found similarities between their customs and ceremonies and Russian Orthodox traditions and beliefs. These similarities allowed clan members to continue to practice native traditions in a Christian world and help to explain why the Orthodox Church in America remains strong in Alaska today. A small black and white photograph at top middle shows clergy and congregation as they pose with a model of St. Michael's Cathedral in the front yard of the Russian Bishop's House around 1900. The cathedral and the Russian Bishop's House symbolize Alaska's living Orthodox heritage. Another black and white image at the top right shows an Orthodox priest and native Alaskans as they stand alongside beehives behind the Russian Bishop's House around 1900. Russians, many from northern Siberia, and natives share their techniques for growing and gathering food in this challenging climate. A heritage garden area at the front of the house still remains and is planted each year with the traditional vegetables and herbs of the time. Panel 14. Finding Common Ground We stand along Lincoln Street, facing the yard of a two-story wood frame schoolhouse built in 1897. Just to the left of the school stands the Russian Bishop's House, a restored two-story building of hewn logs set on a stone foundation. It was constructed in 1842 by the Russian-American Company to serve as a regional headquarters for the Russian Orthodox Church. Learn this Russian welcome. Добро This Russian phrase literally means good arrival and is used to greet a guest arriving at the speaker's home, town, or country. Dabro, or good, in this expression means both, that the guest is welcome, that he or she comes with good intentions. The bishop's house is covered with horizontal boards painted the bold yellow ochre color of the Russian-American company. The hipped roof is clad with metal and painted red. It slopes down to the eaves on all four sides, looking somewhat like a flattened pyramid. Additional trim applied to each window pane forms the shape of a cross. Shed-roofed covered passages or galleries cap both ends of the building, providing entrance, storage, and shelter. The front of the building, along with these galleries, extends the total length to over 90 feet. Grass lawns run the length of the house and schoolyard. All is kept inside a rustic wooden picket fence. Panel title reads, Finding Common Ground. A photograph of the Russian bishop's house taken around 1900 by E.W. Merrill fills the panel. Two spruce trees stand tall at the front of the house as they do today. Text continues. 
Russians and Native Alaskans took the first tentative steps toward mutual understanding here in the Russian bishop's house. The bishop lived here alongside Klingit students and Native and Creole, or mixed ancestry, men studying to become Orthodox priests. A group portrait is shown of 50 or so Klingit schoolchildren posing at the main entrance to the Russian bishop's house. The Russian imperial government expected the Russian Orthodox Church to oversee Native education. Russian priests in Alaska learn the Native languages, often helping to develop the first written form. They translated religious texts and taught Native children to read and write in their own language. Native Alaskans found similarities between their customs and ceremonies and Russian Orthodox traditions and beliefs. These similarities allowed clan members to continue to practice Native traditions in a Christian world and helped to explain why the Orthodox Church in America remains strong in Alaska today. A small black-and-white photograph at top middle shows clergy and congregation as they pose with a model of St. Michael's Cathedral in the front yard of the Russian bishop's house around 1900. The cathedral and the Russian bishop's house symbolize Alaska's living Orthodox heritage. Another black-and-white image at the top right shows an Orthodox priest and Native Alaskans as they stand alongside beehives behind the Russian bishop's house around 1900. Russians, many from northern Siberia, and natives shared their techniques for growing and gathering food in this challenging climate. A heritage garden area at the front of the house still remains and is planted each year with the traditional vegetables and herbs of the time. Panel 15, Church, Company, and Empire. We stand alongside the Crescent Boat Harbor. Across Lincoln Street to our right stands the Russian Bishop's House, built in 1842. A black and white photograph of the Russian Bishop's House extends across the panel. The photograph was taken in 1895 from approximately where we stand. Panel title reads, Church, Company, and Empire. If you lived in New Archangel, or Sitka, in the early 1800s, you would have recognized the yellow walls and red roof of the Russian Bishop's House as the colors of the Russian-American Company. At this time, Sitka was called New Archangel by the Russians and was the capital of Russian America. On the right side of the panel, two maps illustrate our location in Sitka in broader geographical and historical context. The first, a large map of Eastern Europe, Alaska, and the Western coast of North America, sits at the top right of the panel. Twenty-five yellow three-bar crosses of the Russian Orthodox Church marks the location of the Russian-American Company throughout two continents, including Fort Ross near San Francisco, California, and the Hawaiian Islands. Text continues. In 1799, Tsar Paul I granted this company a monopoly on all trade in Russian America. In return, the Tsar required the company to support the Russian Orthodox Church with money, supplies, and protection. The second map, an aerial photograph of present-day downtown Sitka, shows the location of the Russian Bishop's House and two other prominent Russian buildings. The first, St. Michael's Cathedral, built in 1848, burned in 1966, and was reconsecrated ten years later. The second, the Russian-American Company building, built in 1852, is now the Tilson Building, a private business. Both are on the same street, and only a few minutes' walk from here. Only four Russian buildings survive in all of North America. The Russian Imperial Treasury continued to support the church in Sitka, even after the United States acquired Alaska in 1867. This support ended after the 1917 revolution when the Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsar. The Orthodox Church in America continued to maintain the Russian Bishop's House until the National Park Service acquired it in 1972. Panel 15. Church, Company, and Empire. We stand alongside the Crescent Boat Harbor. Across Lincoln Street, to our right, stands the Russian Bishop's House, built in 1842. A black-and-white photograph of the Russian bishop's house extends across the panel. 
The photograph was taken in 1895 from approximately where we stand. Panel title reads, Church, Company, and Empire. If you lived in New Archangel, or Sitka, in the early 1800s, you would have recognized the yellow walls and red roof of the Russian bishop's house as the colors of the Russian-American company. At this time, Sitka was called New Archangel by the Russians and was the capital of Russian America. On the right side of the panel, two maps illustrate our location in Sitka in broader geographical and historical context. The first, a large map of Eastern Europe, Alaska, and the western coast of North America, sits at the top right of the panel. Twenty-five yellow three-bar crosses of the Russian Orthodox Church marks the location of the Russian-American company throughout two continents, including Fort Ross near San Francisco, California, and the Hawaiian Islands. Text continues. In 1799, Tsar Paul I granted this company a monopoly on all trade in Russian America. In return, the Tsar required the company to support the Russian Orthodox Church with money, supplies, and protection. The second map, an aerial photograph of present-day downtown Sitka, shows the location of the Russian bishop's house and two other prominent Russian buildings. The first, St. Michael's Cathedral, built in 1848, burned in 1966, and was re-consecrated ten years later. The second, the Russian-American Company building, built in 1852, is now the Tilson Building, a private business. Both are on this same street, and only a few minutes' walk from here. Only four Russian buildings survive in all of North America. The Russian Imperial Treasury continued to support the church in Sitka, even after the United States acquired Alaska in 1867. This support ended after the 1917 revolution when the Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsar. The Orthodox Church in America continued to maintain the Russian bishop's house until the National Park Service acquired it in 1972. Panel 17, The Cottage Community. A black and white photograph on the left half of the panel takes us up Metlakhetla Street in the early 1900s. If you stood here in 1900, you would find neat, American-style cottages financed by the Indian Industrial and Training School for their Klingit graduates. The street is surfaced with dirt and cobbles. A row of five cottages, each one and a half stories high, line the left. A few have small front porches and picket fences. Wooden planks lying directly on the ground function as a sidewalk in front of the houses. Three native Alaskan boys, five to eight years of age or so, look to the camera as they stand on the planks dressed in overalls and hats. One of the boys holds the hand of a younger native girl in a dress and bonnet. A native Alaskan woman in a skirt, long-sleeved blouse, and headscarf stands a distance behind them, hands held behind her back, watching the children as they walk down the street. To the right of the photograph, a quote from the Indian Industrial and Training School, August 1887. Here, American ideas will continue to grow. Christian graces will be fostered and encouraged. They will continue to receive advice and counsel from the teachers of the school, and we hope to see them keep model homes. A hand-drawn map in the upper right corner of the panel marks the location and names of the residents of each of the 18 cottages placed along Kelly Street and Metlakatla Street from 1888 to 1945. Each rectangle represents an original home site in relation to today's Park Visitor Center. Another photograph to the left of the map illustrates this cottage community in the early 1900s as seen from a distance along the beach before the park was developed. Text continues. Presbyterian missionaries established this model village to safeguard their influence over these young families. Young native Alaskans sacrificed their language and culture to live here, hoping to give their children a better chance to succeed in modern society. This close-knit community produced many of Sitka's modern-day Klingit leaders. These trailblazers successfully used U.S. law to win civil rights for Alaskan natives, years before Native Americans in the rest of the country. 
Cottage residents, Peter Simpson, Frank Price, and Ralph Young, helped found the Alaska Native Brotherhood in 1912. At the top of the panel, a photograph of 31 members of the Alaska Native Brotherhood, dressed in dark suits and ties, posed for a group portrait. Women had a parallel society called the Alaska Native Sisterhood. Both promoted education, citizenship, and civil rights for Alaska Natives. Another group portrait from 1905 shows 12 members of the Cottage Women's Missionary Society. Native Alaskan women in blouses and skirts with hair tied back. Scattered among them are several Native children, also dressed in blouses or shirts and ties. Some women hold babies on their lap. Caption reads, Cottage residents pledged to send their children to school, keep the Sabbath, abstain from alcohol and gambling, and avoid traditional festivities and customs. Then, a quote from the legislature of the Territory of Alaska, April 27, 1915, states, Every Native Indian who has severed all tribal relationships and adopted the habits of civilized life may have United States citizenship. Panel 17. The Cottage Community. A black and white photograph on the left half of the panel takes us up Metlaketla Street in the early 1900s. If you stood here in 1900, you would find neat, American-style cottages financed by the Indian Industrial and Training School for their Klingit graduates. The street is surfaced with dirt and cobbles. A row of five cottages, each one and a half stories high, line the left. A few have small front porches and picket fences. Wooden planks lying directly on the ground function as a sidewalk in front of the houses. Three native Alaskan boys, five to eight years of age or so, look to the camera as they stand on the planks dressed in overalls and hats. One of the boys holds the hand of a younger native girl in a dress and bonnet. A native Alaskan woman in a skirt, long-sleeved blouse, and headscarf stands a distance behind them, hands held behind her back, watching the children as they walk down the street. To the right of the photograph, a quote from the Indian Industrial and Training School, August 1887. Here, American ideas will continue to grow. Christian graces will be fostered and encouraged. They will continue to receive advice and counsel from the teachers of the school, and we hope to see them keep model homes. A hand-drawn map in the upper right corner of the panel marks the location and names of the residents of each of the 18 cottages placed along Kelly Street and Metlaketla Street from 1888 to 1945. Each rectangle represents an original home site in relation to today's Park Visitor Center. Another photograph to the left of the map illustrates this cottage community in the early 1900s as seen from a distance along the beach before the park was developed. Text continues. Presbyterian missionaries established this model village to safeguard their influence over these young families. Young native Alaskans sacrificed their language and culture to live here, hoping to give their children a better chance to succeed in modern society. This close-knit community produced many of Sitka's modern-day Klingit leaders. These trailblazers successfully used U.S. law to win civil rights for Alaska natives years before Native Americans in the rest of the country. Cottage residents Peter Simpson, Frank Price, and Ralph Young helped found the Alaska Native Brotherhood in 1912. At the top of the panel, a photograph of 31 members of the Alaska Native Brotherhood dressed in dark suits and ties posed for a group portrait. Women had a parallel society called the Alaska Native Sisterhood. Both promoted education, citizenship, and civil rights for Alaska Natives. Another group portrait from 1905 shows 12 members of the Cottage Women's Missionary Society. 
Native Alaskan women in blouses and skirts with hair tied back. Scattered among them are several native children, also dressed in blouses or shirts and ties. Some women hold babies on their lap. Caption reads, Cottage residents pledged to send their children to school, keep the Sabbath, abstain from alcohol and gambling, and avoid traditional festivities and customs. Then, a quote from the legislature of the Territory of Alaska, April 27, 1915, states, Every native Indian who has severed all tribal relationships and adopted the habits of civilized life may have United States citizenship.